WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 306. Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1221 in the Residence Inn Recording Studios in Hapeville, Georgia. In today's episode, two Jet Airways pilots dismissed for fighting in the cockpit. Not again. Another close call at San Francisco International. More news, your feedback, and the latest Plane Tales installment, RAF Form 414. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 306 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we're making aviation podcasting great again. And joining me today from across the pond, we have... From his sprawling country estate southwest of London, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Lovely to be on the show again. Wow, after a couple of full starts, or perhaps more, um, we're eventually doing it. Isn't this marvelous? Can't wait. Yes, well, we'll we'll not talk about all those technical difficulties. <laughs> well, actually, we probably will. But uh, also joining us, let me uh, first introduce our guest host today, our guest crew member, and he hails from Scandinavia. No, wait, that's not right. Canada, somewhere in Canada, Canada. Uh, we have former Falcon 900 corporate pilot and now first officer for a Canadian cargo carrier. He's a, a loving father, a dedicated husband, Amar Akkad. Hello, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, Captain Jeff. This is exciting. Good. I'm excited, too. So you might wonder, well, why is Amar with Captain Jeff sitting in a hotel room near the Atlanta International Airport? Well, I'm trying to figure that out myself. Uh, no, I, I got maybe a question we shouldn't ask on the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, I got a, a text from Amar and he goes, hey, are you in town? You know, like the next few days? And I said, yeah, I just got back from a trip. And he said, well, I kind of a short notice thing, but uh, I got uh, called and uh, told that uh, I need to go to recurrent training. And uh, his company is uh, renting or hiring uh, the uh, the simulators here at Acme Training Center, Glo- Acme Global uh, Training Center. And uh, so he said, I'm going to be here for a couple days. And I said, hey, would you be interested in being uh, part of the APG crew on this week's episode? And he said he'd love it. He twisted my arm. I did. He, yeah. I made him do it. He made me do it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll buy lunch if you uh, join me on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so. Here we are. We're staying at the residence, or he, not we, he is staying here uh, very close to the uh, training center. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, 
it seems like you have not been with this cargo carrier very long. And how can it be that you're already in recurrent training? Is that because you're just not doing very well? Right. Yeah. So uh, in Canada, the 7.5 and the 7.6.7 is actually two separate type ratings. Um, so I came down in the summer, that was in August, to do my initial type rating uh, in Miami on the uh, 7.6. And got back to Canada, and we do a little in-house ground school, and uh, that's the conversion course for the uh, 7.5, and they endorse it on your license. Um, so the way our company operates is your first recurrent has to be um, what we call in Canada a PPC, a pilot proficiency check, uh, on the other type. Um, so because I did my initial on the uh, 7.6, now I'm down here to do my recurrent on the uh, 7.5. Um, I was scheduled to come down uh, for recurrent in about a month from now. And um, for us Canadians to use uh, the American uh, training facilities, we have to submit uh, TSA security clearance. And it can be a lengthy process. Uh, mine took maybe a little over 24 hours to come back. And, you know, I thought I'd do it early and, you know, sit on my hands and uh, wait for recurrent. Um, company called me up. I think it it was on Monday, Monday evening, and they said, well, you're the only one that has this TSA clearance. And one of the pilots that was down for a recurrent um, injured his thumb. And apparently, you know, you need your thumb in the simulator. So <laughs> um, so here I am. Um, I flew down uh, with um, uh, an express carrier uh, that flies uh, the Canadian flag and down Atlanta on Wednesday. And... Did a bit of reading, um, text uh, Captain Jeff, and didn't think it was going to happen, but here I am. I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, and it's Friday now. Um, the What day is it? Uh, the 12th of January, yeah, I think? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, great. Uh, I, I'm glad that we had uh, recording issues in Flint two days ago, Wednesday, when you were flying down from right. Canada, yep. uh, because then we wouldn't have had this opportunity to get together and, and, uh, have you on the show with us. Um, it was a great show. I loved it. Well, okay. So <laughs> that show that he is referring to, uh, the, the video of it is on the, uh, our YouTube channel. Um, we were, well, not we, I was having major issues with the uh, bandwidth at the, uh, holiday Inn in Flint, Michigan, where this little card in my room on my desk says that they have uh, high-speed wireless internet. Well, they have wireless internet, mm. but I don't know why they want to call it high-speed because mm -hmm. it was not high-speed. And in fact, not only was it very slow bandwidth, but it was it kept dropping out, and we were trying to uh, – Captain Nick and uh, Dr. Steph were there trying to understand what I was saying which is kind of a difficult thing for them anyway. But in this case, it was compounded by the poor bandwidth and every third word I think was coming through. So we finally just said, forget it. We're going to give up. We're going to do this again so, you know, within the next few days. Sorry, everyone, but it worked out great for me. So yeah, and, yeah, and for, for us as well. Yeah. So, But not for poor Steph. Having said that, she's, yeah. she's right. yeah, that's about to start some fun, isn't she? Yeah, I don't feel really sorry for Steph. I feel sorry for the community that she does. They they don't get to hear from Doctor Steph, but uh, trust me, she's having a great time. She's down in Miami, about to board a cruise ship. Wow! Right now, she was just texting so. me that she was off to buy some wine to take a sneak on board, and um, she showed me a picture of the liquor store she'd just gone to, and it's closed. <laughs> so I don't know quite how she's gonna. Oh uh, man! Cope with that, uh, poor love. She's going to have to spend all that, all the big bucks on the cruise ship. Yeah, then. I'm afraid so. 
Yeah. So we're going to miss uh, Steph. Uh, Steph, if you're listening, we hope that you have a great cruise. And I'm sure you'll have a great time and you'll tell us about it on the next episode, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Give us something uh, to talk about. Speaking of cruise ships, uh, there is uh, another APG crew member on a cruise. Uh, I think he's still on the cruise now. Uh, Dana um, is not able to join us this week because of uh, the fun and frivolity of uh, of his cruise. And apparently, uh, what did he tell us last time that he had purchased the um, $43 per day unlimited uh, alcohol pass or whatever they call it so i hope that he hasn't fallen overboard and that he's still okay <laughs> yes but, um, <laughs> having said that, that i think he was saying that you know a cocktail costs like 11 dollars if you buy it so he's only got down four cocktails and he's already in profit so um yeah i'm sure he's going to stop right there at, at four <laughs> yeah. per day i'm sure per no, hour not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so we miss you too, Dana, if you happen to be listening to this, uh, either live or uh, after the fact. But uh, Captain Nick, how it uh, sounds like you're feeling a little bit better. Oh, I certainly, uh, yeah, I certainly haven't had any coughs or sneezes, just uh, a little bit of a throat, you know, and uh, perhaps a sinus is not 100%, but certainly fit enough to go flying. Um, I was just looking back at my diary. I last flew to the landing on the 16th of December um, and since then I have not done a thing so now it's 12th of January that's quite a while so uh, I was out of currency for my line check uh, so it means I have to do a pre-line check called an AOC and they determine if I'm fit to do my line check uh, fit and capable and I'm doing that tomorrow so I'm off to lovely Lagos tomorrow uh, and, um, then I'm off for quite a few days because I'm heading up to Cosford to uh, lecture to the Royal Aeronautical Society, which I'm really looking forward to. And I think that, uh, both Pip and Nev may be up there. I, there's a chance that, uh, someone else might be joining us. Uh, I haven't heard confirmation about that yet, but it might have a few APGs up there for moral support. Uh, then we're heading off for heckling. Uh, yeah, that's much more likely. <laughs> we're heading off the next day down to London um, to uh, book into the uh, Putney Bridge uh, Hotel and uh, uh, have a nice meal that night. Uh, and I think you're flying in uh, on that. That'll be Friday the 19th. Um, you're getting in quite early that day, I think, aren't you, Jeff? Well, that, that's the plan. Um, still. Oh, Sorry, oh! look at that. Can you believe this? Amar <laughs> is sitting there in front of the mixer control panel, and he muted me. <laughs> Sorry about that. How rude. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Get out of here. Oh, wait a minute. This is your room. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get out of here. He's out of here first, though, so give him a break. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm seated on the left side, Captain. Yeah, Nick, exactly you know. right. That's true. He's using the wrong hand. To, uh, yeah, that's For right. a minute there, I actually thought I was having a stroke. I'm thinking, <laughs> I it fun. feels like I'm trying to make words, but I'm not hearing any of them. Uh, wow. Yeah. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. yeah so the plan is yeah. <laughs> to uh, fly out on, um, on uh, Thursday evening and then getting in early Friday morning. Um, so, so I'll be getting uh, into London just after you land. So, uh, well, hopefully we'll meet up around Putney, you know, around lunchtime. And then uh, we're going to have a nice afternoon yakking probably and uh, uh, then go out for a nice evening meal, have a few beverages. And the next day, PT UK 200. So that's going to be the bee's knees. Looking forward to yeah. that. Yeah. 
that is uh, that's going to be very exciting. I uh, can't wait. And the only downside is that I think that uh, Nev will be there, but uh, yeah, we'll, well, we'll not let that ruin everything. Well, I'm pretty sure Pip will be there as well. So, oh, uh, you're kidding me? Yeah, He's no. going to be there too? Well, I'm, I'm I don't thinking know. He might be. You know what? Let me look at the uh, let me look at the seat availability on these flights. I'm thinking that they're they might be filling up really <laughs> fast. I may not be able to make it. Yeah. So anyway, that's my month ahead. Uh, just this one trip to do, and then basically off to the end of the month. Got a little um, a boost today to my morale because uh, I hadn't heard anything from the company about uh, my move to greater part-time, so I uh, have a little bit more time between trips. And they've just confirmed that uh, not uh, next month, but the month after, I'll be uh, down to 75% of a full roster, which will give me a couple of extra days, which I'm looking forward to. Um, having said that, I haven't done much flying uh, in December or January, so I'm pretty much uh, on that kind of a roster at the moment anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying, well, life's pretty peachy at the moment. Peachy, peachy, peachy. That's wonderful. Mm. Um, I'm sure that you're going to be um, up to speed very quickly. Um, you know, how, how hard is it to remember which button to push, right? Yeah, there's only two. I mean, it's a 50-50 <laughs> chance. Of course, we're kidding. There are more than two. I think there are about five or six. Yeah, but, at least. Well, yeah, at least. But the, the, those, the other three we're not supposed to push. So. <laughs> or you have to remember not to push yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, glad to see that you're feeling better and uh, you'll be fully qualified again. Um, uh, let's see. For me, uh, was on a trip um, Tuesday through Thursday, and uh, I mentioned that we were trying to record the show on Wednesday in Flint, Michigan. Now, so how is the weather? Well, the weather, Amar. Funny you should ask. <laughs> Um, so we're flying up from Atlanta on Wednesday and they're showing some, you know, mid, mid level ceilings, like, uh, 600, uh, over, but the, the, uh, terminal forecast was, uh, forecasting for ceilings to drop down to about 300. And I'm thinking, no problem. They have ILS approaches for runway nine and runway two seven, and then they have a one eight and three six runway as well. But they have uh, non-precision approaches. So we're heading up there and we're looking at the weather and it's kind of holding at 600 feet and uh, they're advertising. Uh, I'm having a discussion with the uh, dispatcher and I said, do you have any idea what uh, runways they're using up there? They don't have a digital ATIS. So I, you know, had, you, you had to wait until you're a little bit closer, tune it up on the radio. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, she said, it looks like they're using one eight and I'm thinking, okay, let me see what we have on one eight. Oh, only a VOR and a, a VOR and an RNAV approach. And, uh, on the 88 fleet at Acme right now, we're not allowed to fly RNAV instrument approaches. Now we are, they actually flipped the switch on the, uh, MD 90 fleet for those, um, nineties that are equipped with GPS. Uh, so had I been in a 90, then it would have been a good thing because I could have flown the RNAV approach, which brings you down a little bit, almost 100 feet lower for the minimums. Uh, so I'm thinking, no problem. They have the, uh, well, looked at, looked at the NOTAMs. Runway 9 localizer is out of service. I thought, well, that's okay. We'll just use the 2.7. The winds are right out of the south at about 15 knots. So it'll be, you know, I, I'll, I can put up with a 15-knot crosswind, no problem. And uh, so I told my first officer when we get, I briefed the, whole, the full 2.7 left ILS approach. 
Uh, I told the first officer when we make initial contact with approach control up there in Flint to request the ILS approach to runway 27. And so we did. He did. And then they said, uh, well, the, the nine localizer is not, not in service and the, uh, the, they're out there working on it. So they had to turn off the, uh, the ILS 427 as well so they could work on the thing and get it fixed. And I thought, oh, that, that's not good. Then the realization set in that I was going to have to actually fly this VOR, VOR to runway 18. And I've done it once before within the last couple of months. And uh, I know from you know much better weather that it's a, a very odd approach. It brings you in at a pretty uh, interesting angle. And the uh, final approach fix is the VOR, which is right over the field. So you're coming in at this weird angle. There is no final approach fix designated on this approach. So it's like one of those where, okay, you know, you're on your own and there is a step down fix that you have to be uh, concerned about. Uh, you're pulling that up on your... Uh, yeah, I'm just taking a look at it. Yeah. yeah so that, uh, what is the fix with the uh, 1560 foot uh, step down uh, hebub or he-bub? something like that? Yep. Yeah. So I, I kind of made a virtual final approach fix just to kind of give myself some good information as far right. as vertical path was concerned. And we did have the VNAV system giving us information on the uh, vertical path, uh, which was, you know, kind of helpful. And uh, so here we go. We're, we're coming down. And I'm thinking, I really do hope that the ceiling, uh, let's see, the, the height above touchdown at the um, minimum descent altitude is what? It's like... Uh, uh, 800. No, it's, it doesn't say on that. I'm used to looking at a Jefferson. Yeah. I'm used to looking at a Jefferson. Yeah. I think it was like, um, right at a, maybe just right below the 600 foot ceiling, like 578. Although our derived decision altitude is the uh, minimum descent altitude and you add 50 feet to it. So, okay. So you do add the 50 feet. Yeah. Yeah. So we do these, we call them CANPA procedures, uh, constant, Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I don't know what it stands for, but anyway, uh, you kind of make yourself a, a virtual glide path and uh, typically about 800 feet per minute uh, rate of descent. And uh, you kind of check some other things to make sure it looks like it's going to put you uh, over the threshold at the right point. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're getting closer and closer and I'm looking outside and see nothing but white. And then I hear my first officer's first officer say approaching minimums. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, that's 80 feet above our derived decision altitude. And I'm thinking, oh, please don't tell me I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to you can go, go around. around. And so kept on going, kept on going. And then minimums. And right at the last moment, I caught a little glimpse of the airport environment and Shortly thereafter, the actual runway and continued the approach. Yeah, but in mind, McDonald's. Yeah, well, I don't know. It was. I think it was a uh, Tim Hortons or something. <laughs> I know. You know, we're not in Canada, but we're pretty darn close. I, I love that phrase. I must admit, the airport environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I recognized that area of the ground I was looking at. It looked like the airport environment to me. Yeah, there, there's the freeway heading into the airport. Yeah, I've got that. <laughs> So we're not going to really discuss any more about this. But yeah, no, let me, no one else is listening, Captain. We actually, we actually, you know, saw, I saw what I needed to see when we got in. But I'm thinking to myself, I was so close. I mean, I was actually moving, you know, to from the on the uh, throttles that we have the thrust thrust levers on the um, MD88. Uh, they're uh, below the uh, the knobs of the throttle. 
uh, and uh, you you kind of hit them with the palm of your hand and uh, the toga button. And uh, did somebody say toga? Toga. Yeah. Toga! Um, okay, that's enough. Uh, and then I thought, okay, so here's the deal. Either they're going to have to get those folks out of the ILS shed and turn that sucker on for the 27 ILS so we can get into the airport, or we're going to go to Detroit. Go to Detroit. For some reason, I'm slurring my words this morning. Sorry. And I haven't been drinking yet today. Um, it's left over from last night, is it? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> or early this morning. Um, yeah, so... Uh, no, that was a close one. And then the next day, going back to Atlanta. Oh, you know, the funny thing is, when we got in, the crew that was taking the jet back out to Atlanta, they had come in uh, the day before. And it was funny because I, I got off the airplane and they looked at me. They were at, at the end of the jetway uh, near the airplane and we were getting our bags and stuff off. And I could just look on uh, the look on their faces was like a knowing look like, you know, you made it in, you know, wasn't that crazy. And so I had a discussion with them. I said, did you guys uh, have any trouble getting in you know, last night? And he goes, yeah, we, we had to go around. So they actually had to perform a go around and they, they did another one and they were able to see what they needed to see to get in. And uh, we were just kind of shaking our heads like uh, that was not a lot of fun. But it was good practice <laughs> for our proficiency. Um, and then the next day we flew to Atlanta and that was like uh, category one minimums and literally as we were saying minimums approach lights in sight continue land you know and boom on the ground yeah. so it's been an interesting couple of days as far as what i'm sure that many of you listening out there um uh, who are pilots especially professional uh do, do it for a living have uh, and if you've been flying the last week or so you probably uh have a lot of experience with all these things but anyway it was it was exciting it's just like simulator training yeah exactly so um that's about enough of that and uh hey on today's friday so just a couple of days from now i'm going to be laying over in kansas city on monday and tom seagraves who attended the uh, 300th um, recording and party over at dana's house uh last november uh will noticed on my schedule that I was going to be in Kansas city for an overnight. And he said, why don't we do an APG meetup? And I said, okay, let's do that. And so Tom is, you know what? He sent me some audio feedback. So let me let Tom tell you about the pending meetup in Kansas city. Hey, APG crew, Tom from Columbia, Missouri. I'm just uh, sending some quick feedback in to let everybody know that this coming Monday, January 15th, we are having an APG meetup in Kansas City. Captain Jeff is going to be laying over uh, that night. And um, we are going to meet at Arthur Bryant's Barbecue, which is at 1727 Brooklyn Avenue. It's on the corner of 18th and Brooklyn, uh, just east of downtown Kansas City. It's just off of I-70, about maybe a half a mile. So it's uh, very easy to get to. Um, probably going to be getting there around 6.30 p.m. on Monday the 15th. Um, I, I have put a, a Twitter message on the uh, APG Crew Twitter page. Uh, you can contact me that way. Um, my uh, Twitter handle is just simply at Tom Seagraves. And Captain Jeff, feel free to also put my cell phone number in the show notes. Hopefully we've got uh, some APG listeners in the Kansas City area that can join us. And it should be a good time of uh, some good barbecue and uh, a few beers. 
and uh, a good meeting with uh, Captain Jeff while he's in town. We'll show him some good old Midwest hospitality. Consequently, this is the same barbecue place that I took Captain Nick when he was in Kansas City a couple of years ago, and I got his thumbs up on it. So hopefully, Captain Jeff, it'll be something you enjoy as well. So look forward, look, I look forward to seeing you, Captain Jeff, uh, just a few days, and uh, hopefully we'll see several other APG listeners there as well. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that Captain's Nick's, Captain Nick's thumbs were all over the barbecue? Yep. I was right up. Oh, I'm not going then. Let's go somewhere else. <laughs> it was that. that Take was me that somewhere one. where Captain Nick has not been. That was a great spot. He said, uh, did I want to go somewhere, you know, kind of a bit rough, but uh, very traditional? I said, yeah, why not? That sounds fantastic. And indeed, it was brilliant. A uh, bit of a heart stopper when it comes to the cholesterol. But, you know, as long as you're not doing it all day, every day, uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Loved it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So hopefully, uh, I don't know when, I, I'm going to try to get this published, this episode published um, either tonight or sometime tomorrow so that if you're listening to this and hopefully you've already downloaded it and you're listening to it, and if you're in the Kansas City area, you'll be able to meet up with us. Again, uh, Tom will be picking me up around 6. So we should be at Arthur Bryant's Barbecue at about 6.30ish. And then uh, we'll uh, eat some great food and have some great uh, fellowship uh, amongst the uh, APG community in the Kansas City area. All right. Um, let's see. What else? Anything else that we need to talk about uh, as far as what's been happening and what's going on in the near future? We talked about the PTUK uh, 200th episode um, party and recording in London uh, just coming up uh, the end of the next, well, I guess about a week from today or a week from tomorrow? Yeah, a week from tomorrow, Saturday. That's right. Um, now, if, if uh, we're going to be pushing out some uh, special uh, broadcasts for our Patreons, I expect, Jeff. So uh, oh, yeah. if you've ever Absolutely. thought about becoming a Patreon, now would be an excellent time to uh, to join up and start contributing because, of course, you'll get a lot of extra uh, stuff from us uh, in a week's time. Uh, looking forward to that indeed. Absolutely. And uh, wow, what a per perfect segue. You're such a professional. Johnny, how much more coffee? That's Go not bang. what I meant to play. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. The Coffee Fund. I love coffee. I love tea. He's got his microphone I muted. Dava Jive and it loves me. Oh yeah. Well, the Java Jive plays in the background while we talk about the Coffee Fund and joining the Coffee Fund cadre. And as Nick just mentioned, um, one of the perks of be being part of the Coffee Fund cadre is that you get to hear a private feed of wonderful APG crew logs where we talk about all kinds of things from uh well amplified uh, explanations of things usually of a professional nature and that's what uh, nick likes to do of course you're not going to hear anything like that from me i just talk about what's happening behind the scenes with the crew and the podcast and all that kind of stuff but anyway we try to keep it entertaining and informational and uh, give you something extra for supporting the crew and the uh, show actually uh, in a financial manner because we have expenses we have a uh, website hosting costs we have uh, media hosting costs uh, equipment costs and of course we have uh, coffee 
uh, funds that we need to replenish so we have plenty of caffeine to keep us awake, especially for Nick on these long, long overseas flights. And, uh, of course, occasionally we'll use some of that money to have a beer or two. And we do appreciate that. And, of course, we have a lot of these little meetups here and there. And um, a lot of the uh, contributions go toward that as well. So if you're uh, someone who has some extra money to contribute to the show, uh, to give us the motivation to keep doing this thing, please consider joining the Coffee Fund Cadre by contributing to the Coffee Fund. And you can learn about how to do that by heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, let me see if I can find this page. I can tell you that we've had a few contributors to the PayPal Classic method, or the coffee fund via the PayPal Classic method. Wow, I'm having trouble making words this morning. And the song is about to end. That's one of the things that's distracting me. I'm thinking, I have a lot more to say, and they're, they're stopping. So I'm going to have to uh, hit the button again. And have thank you, thank you very much. Very, very nice. Now, why don't you go ahead and sing some more? Okay, okay, thank you. Um, let's see here. I think we already talked about Kevin and his nice contribution, Jeff Muller and Anissa out in Northern California. They uh set up a recurring payment via PayPal in the classic method. And uh, we got theirs uh, in for January. Thank you, Jeff and Anissa. And now I'm not sure who this is exactly, but uh, the name that I have here is Simsation. I'm hoping that I'm pronouncing that right. Simsation gave us a a beautiful, a great, amazing amount of uh, contribution. Thank you very much uh, for $250. Uh, they uh, gave us for the uh, coffee. Mm-hmm. We can drink a lot of coffee and beer, don't you think? And I mean, uh, pay for the expenses of doing the uh, podcast is really what I mean. So uh, thank you very much for uh, that show of support, financial support. Remember, we always say that if you don't have the money to give us uh, a contribution to the coffee fund, don't worry about it. I mean, you know, you need to, you know, take care of yourselves, especially if you're someone out there who is a student and uh, wants to uh, pay for flying lessons so that they become pilots like us. So. Is that song about to end again? Wow. I, I better hurry up. So let's move on to the coffee fund, uh, the other method of contributing to the show, and that's via Patreon. This is a mess, isn't it, Captain Nick? You've done better, old chap. I have. I have. I'm just out of practice here. Anyway, Patreon as another way to support the show, and uh, we have a lot of patrons, like almost 200, 190, I think, and uh, they give us uh, a certain amount of money per episode. Uh, They're patrons of the show, and uh, since the last episode, we have a few who have joined us. Well, first of all, let's talk about Steve Andrus, who uh, edited his pledge and uh, bumped it up a buck per episode, so thank you, Steve. And uh, Dan Brooks, uh, a new um, producer, thank you, sir. First Officer Frank, pledged uh, $2 per episode. Thank you, sir. Another uh, producer of the show. And Dominic, um, yet again, another producer has joined us. So thank you, all of you, for becoming patrons of the show. And if you're interested in supporting us again, you can learn all about it by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup.
That was painful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and now let's move on to this week's news. Stand by for news. Let's start right off the bat with uh, the incident at San Francisco International uh, just a couple of days ago. Looks like an Aeromexico Boeing 737-800 registration X-ray Alpha, Alpha, Mike, uniform, performing flight 668 from Mexico City to San Francisco was cleared for the approach to San Francisco's runway 28 right. Later cleared to land runway 28 right. Both instructions were read back correctly. Uh, the aircraft was descending through about 500 feet AGL when Tower noticed that the aircraft aircraft had lined up for runway 28 left instead, and not 28 right. And that is when we heard this from the Tower. Aeromexico 668, go around. Aeromexico 668, go around. Aeromexico 668, turn left, heading 265, left heading 265. At heading 265, Aeromexico 668, heading 265, 3100. November 4th, Charlie, contact Norcal departure. Charlie, departure, full bow, Charlie. Aeromexico 668, contact Norcal 135.1. 135.1. Ken, runway 1041, just to let you know, no one's on final. Runway 1041, right? No one's going <laughs> to land on top of you. <laughs> <laughs> so. She was, I think, a little frazzled from that. She wasn't expecting to have to tell Aeromexico 668, not ExpressJet 665 or Aeromexico 665. Uh, anyway, she wasn't expecting them to line up on the wrong runway and, and give them a missed uh, approach instruction. And and uh, that's understandable. You know, you're kind of like, what? You know, what's going on here? Um, so anyway, she finally got all the uh, – I think the Aeromexico pilots knew that they were talking – uh, she was talking to them, and uh, they got out of the way, uh, got, got about a 15-degree left uh, vector and a climb away from the runway. And then uh, she was reassuring the uh, Virgin America flight, uh, the Redwood flight, uh, in position on that runway that uh, Aeromexico was about to land upon, uh, that, uh, don't worry, nobody else on final out there, nobody's going to try to kill you, uh, basically reading through the, uh, reading between the lines. But um it, it it sounded like it was, uh, you know, a late go around from uh, air traffic control. I mean, if they had lined up uh, for two eight left, um, I would have assumed air traffic control would have caught it maybe a little bit earlier. Um, I'm I'm surprised that, um, you know, it says here they were descending through 500 feet. Right, uh, AGL. I mean, it's it's not an excuse, but um, 
Well, they said that they were on the ILS, but they may have tuned. I, yeah. I'm thinking what may have happened here, and this right. happens sometimes. You kind of in your head, you're thinking, okay, we're going to be landing on two eight left, and you brief the ILS approach for two eight left, and then when you hear approach control tell them tell you that they're vectoring you for uh, an approach to a certain runway, even if they said two eight right in your head, you're 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 thinking to yourself two right. eight left. Yeah. I've seen it as well with the iPads because a lot of places uh, when you're not sure if you're going to get the left or right side, uh, you'd load up both approach plates and you'd have them armed um, with a quick swipe of a finger. Uh, you can flip over to uh, the wrong side and you'd brief that. And depending on how you have it zoomed, it may not be apparent that that is the correct plate that you That's have going. That's a good point. So, you know. That's one of the hazards, uh, risks yeah. of the uh, the electronic flight right, right. bag. Is, I think zooming um, and emitting some of the information. You mean captain's, uh, captain's view? <laughs> right. Where yeah, you're like right. zooming it in uh, <laughs> as far as it will go so yeah. you can actually see the writing yeah. and stuff. Um. Yeah, so I, I I would imagine that that's probably one of the human factors that mm-hmm. may uh, have resulted in this. Mm-hmm. But but to give the uh, air traffic controller a little bit of a break, uh, have you ever flown into uh, San Francisco International? Yes, I have. Okay, yeah. so yeah. those are pretty sure. darn close yeah. runways. Yeah. Those parallel runways mm-hmm. are very, very close. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, so close that they can't do simultaneous ILS approaches right. uh, to both runways. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to have one coming in at an angle mm-hmm. uh, to be legal. So. Um, it might be, uh, I don't know, from the from the tower's vantage point, I'm not sure how easy it is uh, to see that an, an airplane is rent and lined up on the wrong room. What was the ceiling, well, too? I, Let me look well, at I that. Bet you, uh, I bet you uh, they uh, used uh, a radar repeater display up no, there. No, that's true. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, never mind. I'm not going to defend her. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, and they, uh, you'd have thought with the number of incidents they've had recently, all the controllers in that tower would be really queued up to it at the moment because uh, they're obviously going to be under a microscope right now trying to work out why they've had so many incidents in such a short time. True. With potential to be just so horrendous. Uh, and so, Captain Al makes a good point. Uh, he's in our chat room. Hey, Captain Al. Oh, that's you know. a rare occurrence. Captain Al making a good point. Well, yeah, that's why I had to highlight it. Uh, He says, discipline comes into play here. Every time ATC states a runway, I look at the landing runway entered into the FMS, the flight management system computer. Good, uh, good practice, I'd say. Yeah, but you can still enter the right runway and the wrong frequency and the airplane will couple to the wrong side. Hmm. that's a good point and, too. and having the runway, so depending on the zoom that you have on your navigation display, it may look like everything is fine. Um, so yeah, it, it it is interesting, and they're having a lot of issues, obviously there. So now tell um, me, uh, I don't know a lot about the Boeing system. Does anyone know uh, if uh, they have an auto um, ILS tuning capability, or do they manually have to tune up the ILS if they change the runway? Yeah, on the seven five seven six, you have to manually tune it. And I would believe, I think the 800 and the 900 737s and perhaps the 700, I mean, the, the newer generation 73s may have, I don't know for sure, though. Maybe right. somebody out there listening right. will know. But it's uh, it's pretty apparent if you, you know, if you load, say, 2.8 right and you tune 2.8 left, uh, at some point it's going to give you a message to say a frequency error. Um, so it, it, sh- it shouldn't happen, but, um, you know, I, I, I can see it happening. On my airplane, you know, there's nothing that will prevent you from you yeah. know, putting in the wrong frequency yeah. unless it's not an ILS frequency. Right. Right. 
Um, so you have to be very, very careful on the uh, older technology mm-hmm. jets like the one I fly. Well, that's true. And we should always behave as if uh, we're on a line check and an instrument rating because uh, one of the requirements there is to double check that what you've actually got tuned is uh, what you're displaying and uh, it matches your plate. And there's all those cross-checking things we would always right. do, particularly if yeah. we had a line check captain sit behind us that sometimes uh, people think it's okay not to do on a regular trip. There you go. This is a proof, possibly. Yeah. We're, we're, we're double-guessing here, but this is possibly a situation where they weren't doing all that stuff yeah i you know you make a good point there nick uh a lot of times we'll do things and we're thinking you know if if the faa or a line check person is sitting in my jump seat well i'm going to do it this way instead um it's always just best to do it the right way all the time <laughs> and that way you don't have to change anything when somebody exactly. is uh yep. watching over your shoulder it just makes it so much easier it does yeah. it may be more of a hassle yeah. you know a little bit but yeah. uh, in the long run right probably your life is going to be better <laughs> Anyway, uh, so we'll we'll see if uh, we we hear anything about now. Interestingly, um, well, never mind. It doesn't matter. Uh, let's move on to no, 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 this. We're all going to sit here forever wondering what you were going to say. Now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anymore. I I think I've had another stroke. Uh. <laughs> Not sure what I'm saying or what I was going to say. Uh, let's see. Let's move on to this one, which was a very interesting. And I think that this has been uh, discussed on some other aviation podcasts. Uh, so hopefully uh, uh, it, it doesn't feel like we're. Uh, oh, shoot. I forgot to put that sound effect in here. Oh, well. Ah, I, I had a horse neighing. I was going to say, I hope this doesn't sound like we're beating a dead horse. <laughs> and I don't have it. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. That was loud, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, Jet Airways has uh, fired two pilots who allegedly got into a fight and stormed out of a cockpit during a flight, leaving the controls unattended. The Indian airline said in a statement it had terminated services of both the cockpit crew with immediate effect. The staff involved, a man and a woman, were taken off flight duties following an investigation. The incident occurred on New Year's Day, a New Year's Day flight from London to Mumbai, or Bombay if you prefer, during which the male co-pilot reportedly slapped the female pilot after they got into a heated argument. The female pilot is believed to have left the cockpit in tears, followed briefly by the co-pilot. As a result, the cockpit was left unattended on the flight, which had 324 passengers and 14 crew on board. Aviation safety rules state that at least one pilot should remain at the controls all times during a flight. Oh, why? If the airplane's automated, it doesn't matter, right? Nothing is going to go wrong. The autopilot's just not going to stop working just out of the blue or anything, right? That's never happened, right? Yeah, it happens. Um, It's just, I'm... uh, amazed flabbergasted on this one um you know i guess when you get in a heated uh, into a heated argument sometimes you forget where you are and what is going on and what your responsibilities are i know that i think stats show that uh, more accidents uh, car accidents happen when people are agitated and upset because they are thinking so much about the fight and or maybe the aftermath of a flight or a fight or whatever and they uh forget about what they're doing in the car and they're speeding or driving recklessly and so it just makes sense that you know if somebody is having a, a heated argument a fight uh that you may forget that oh yeah you know what i probably shouldn't leave the cockpit because there's nobody else no more humans up here in the cockpit and something could go wrong and uh, so that's 
obviously, uh, I guess uh, we several of you community members sent this into our feedback, and uh, the first ones kind of trickled in right after the uh, uh, this incident, and uh, they were initially grounded, and then uh, ultimately fired. And then Amar, you said that you. Uh, heard something from somebody, a little bit more information about yeah, this? Yeah, so from a former um, um, Jet Airways pilot that I know. Uh, he wasn't on that fleet, but um, this, the story that I heard was, uh, and there's some, some more news surfacing. Um, I did a quick Google search. Um, apparently, the two crew members... Um, they are uh, they might be uh, married, uh, husband and wife. They're both captains. And um, the argument had started uh, before the flight. Um, now I don't know, um, at Jet Airways, if, um, you know, if you were married or, um, you know, you, you could be paired together. I think that's, um, I think that's really the number one, um, issue there. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Um, the, the, uh, the male captain, um, the husband, I guess, uh, he was in the right seat acting as uh, the first officer. So uh, on that flight, uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, um, but it, it'll be interesting to get some more information on that. Um, the only thing I can think about, uh, Captain Nick did uh, a lovely plane tales on um, that Trident accident. And one of the issues was the heated argument that they had in the pilot's lounge uh, before the flight. So um, we don't take these things obviously lightly. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, it changes your attitude and your approach towards a flight. So it's, um, it, it, it is a big issue and uh, having 300 and um, you know, on the triple seven, I mean, the amount of people behind you, I mean, this could have been a disaster. Um, so you make some yeah. great points there, Amar, and um, you're quite right. It was something that we used to have drummed into us when we were uh, in the Air Force because, of course, there's only one damn pilot. Uh, he flew, uh, uh, even if you were in a two-seat airplane, the other guy was usually a navigator or observer, wizzo, whatever you like to call him. Uh, there's only one guy flying the airplane, and if he uh, hasn't got his mind 100% on the job, uh, you know, anything could happen. Now, at least with two people on the flight deck, you're hoping that if one of them gets agitated, the other one's uh, still in the right state of mind to uh, carry on. But um, I, I, I'm not going to even comment on whether it's a good idea to have uh, a married couple working together on the flight deck. I know a lot of airlines happens because I see it regularly pitching up on newspapers. You know, Mr. and Mrs. blah blah flew this airplane off together and they often make a PR stunt out of it. But... Uh, Whatever happens, uh, if you can't keep uh, your tempers and keep your uh, disputes between uh, people who are going to have to work together um, out of your work environment, then you one, you're in the wrong job, and two, you should certainly excuse yourself from flying that trip. I mean, there's, I don't think there's a company in the world that would um, be too angry with anyone if they decided to do that because that is 100% the safest option. So, uh, you know, if if you're if you get upset sufficiently upset say by TSA trying to get to the uh, aircraft and you're so upset you you feel no longer mentally uh, capable of uh, going to work and concentrating on everything that needs to be done. I think it's quite right that you uh, say look 
I'm going to have to take a break before I can fly. So either we delay the flight, you put me on a different flight or something. So, you know, the situation, if it boils up on the ground, you just got to be professional about it. And, uh, and, you know, say, right, and this is not a good day for me to fly. I'm going to go home and I'll come back better when I'm, you know, more stable. I, I can understand the, um, uh... You know, wanting if you're a husband and wife team, you're working for the same airline, you bid the same trip, uh, you know, going out places and and uh, almost being like on a second, third honeymoon, you know, like all the time. Um, but on the other hand, if you have a fight or a your a rocky relationship, I can see where that would be a really bad thing. And I and for me, the the biggest safety factor for me, if if I can handle things going wrong with the airplane, horrible weather and everything else. But if it's a people thing uh, where you are are uh, disagreeing with somebody or, for instance, uh, I remember last year I had to go back to the cabin of the airplane before pushback because there was a passenger there uh, who was seated in the uh, – not the economy section but not and not the – uh, first class section, but that that middle area that we call a comfort plus or whatever, and but he did not buy a ticket for that, and the flight attendants asked him to leave and go to the seat that you know he was supposed to be or the, that he was assigned, and he refused, and he said, "Look, you know you're you you're running late. You've made me miss a day of work," and he was very very upset, and so finally I went, "Okay, let me go back and talk to him," and so I finally explained to him that he had to leave this seat and he had already like uh he had a, a, a laptop and a mouse and he had like snaked the mouse wiring through the back of the tray table and everything else and he was having to you know rip that through and he was just in a having a fit and uh, i said i'm sorry and i'm you know i apologize for our schedule ruining your but you know i'm sure that you're not the only person on the airplane who has had their lives, um, you know, inconvenienced at least because of our late operation. And we do apologize for that, but we have to have you, you know, go back to your seat. And, and so anyway, it was, a, it was a kind of a heated discussion with this guy and it just made my chest tight and it made me feel bad because I don't like having negative reactions with uh, other human beings or interactions, I should say. So I went back up to the airplane, we're taxiing out, it was a long taxi out, but I mean, I could feel like I could feel my whole body was just agitated and I couldn't really f- focus completely on what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm thinking this, and I even had this discussion with my first officer. I said, this is a major safety of flight thing right now. You know, I just need to forget about that and and focus on what I'm supposed to be doing here so that we can safely operate the airplane. But I just hate it when I have to go back there and, and, uh, and, and some people do this, you know, without even thinking about it, it doesn't bother them at all. But my, my pulse goes up and and uh, just feel like uh, well, well kudos to you for recognizing it and uh, speaking up uh, because a lot of people they try to hide their feelings um, if they're upset and you know yeah. the number one reaction would be, would be denial no I'm fine I'm I'm a pilot I'm a professional and I'm gonna you know got to complete the task yeah I told hand, my so. I told my first officer I said you know just you know make you know watch you know you should be always watching me closely anyway yeah. because you know I'm Captain Nielsen and. Sure. You got to watch me closely, keep me out of trouble, Uh, but uh, watch me especially closely now because I'm still kind of agitated by that interaction with that passenger. So, yeah, this can be quite tricky. I mean, from from the corporate flying because, you know, we have an open door policy. We don't even have a cockpit door. So, um, 
um, a lot of the issue, a lot of times we don't even have a flight attendant on some of the corporate jets. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's a delicate balance where you're the captain, yet you got to solve some of the problems that are happening back there. So, um, and believe me, there can be a lot of problems. So yeah, no, it's not my favorite place to be. Um, I much rather just focus on, you know, uh, flying the airplane. Yes. And, and that's what, you know, we're trained to do. And Captain Al, again, making another significant comment. Thank you, Al. Uh, do you have to often deal? I know. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. We should probably ring a bell every time we see one. Absolutely. Let's see. Uh, do you often have to deal with this sort of issue? Surely this is a cabin crew matter. Normally it is handled at the cabin crew level and the gate agent level. Uh, but uh, I, I guess the uh, flight attendant said we're a little um frustrated by this whole thing and the fact that they were not being taken seriously and i probably should have uh in hindsight said why don't we let our gate agent come on or the passenger service agent like somebody specially trained to deal with passengers like this and and then i could have stayed away and uh not have been affected by this and so that that's a good point and and how often does something like this happen like maybe once every 10 years in my experience, uh, or maybe even longer than that. I mean, I can only think of a couple times where I've had to go back and, and talk to a passenger. And usually when you go back there and you have your hat on and, you know, they, they can tell this is the captain, they're going, oh, I, I better, uh, you know, take my things and, and just shut up and go back to my seat because I don't want to get kicked off the airplane. I think the mustache helps too. Yes, of course. I start, yeah. you know, I, I start, uh, you know, playing with my mustache yeah. as I'm going back there. <laughs> Who wants Kind of grunting a little bit. <laughs> but uh, usually as soon as they see that uh, one of the pilots is coming back, then they go, oh, okay, this is serious. I see that I need to uh, behave myself and we can move on. Anyway, um, so yeah, uh, that's, it's, it's a tough, a tough thing. And, uh, I don't know if we're going to hear anything else from this, you know, they're, they're fired, uh, they're, they're dismissed, they're terminated. So I would imagine that, uh, well, that's probably all we'll hear of the story and hopefully won't hear of any more of these kind of events. Uh, an update on a couple of things that we talked about on previous episodes, uh, the, uh, what is it? The West, uh, West wind, West wind flight, the ATR 42, I believe that crashed on December 13th, uh, leaving, uh, or flying in uh, Saskatchewan, um, crashed at what Fond du Lac. Is that the way you yeah. pronounce that? Um, they, uh, the, the, uh, transport Canada was investigating this and, uh, realized right away, I guess that there were all kinds of issues and problems with the way that the uh, company was being, um, at least the operations end of this company were being, uh, operated. Um, and they decided to pull their, uh, operating certificate. And I don't, don't know if there is anything else going on with that. Do you know, uh, Amar? I mean, I know that you're, you um, live up there, not in Saskatchewan, no, of course. Um, no, I, I, I don't. And I was, uh, just looking at the Av Herald, um, article um really one point and i don't know if it was a contributing factor or not but i was looking at the weather there um around the time of takeoff and i noticed that the METAR was an auto report and it was reporting light snow and in my experience at that time of the day at night um that light snow in you know oftentimes especially with that temperature it could be more like uh, moderate uh snow so um I'm thinking icing could have been a contributing factor. Uh, certainly the ATRs are known to have uh, uh, 
uh, flight controls issues uh, with icing. Um, but no, I, it's, uh, I, I don't have any more information than uh, what I see online. Yeah, it was cold and snowing, minus yep. nine and yep. uh, light snow. And yep. as you said, maybe more than light snow. Right. Well, you, you look at the report and you see, you know, it seems decent weather, but uh, it could be deceiving, especially when it's coming from an auto, um, mm-hmm. auto station. Apparently, uh, Transport Canada and the Transportation Safety Board um, realized that uh, there were uh, some issues, safety uh, requirements. Uh, let's see, what does it say here? Transport Canada said it had identified deficiencies in the company's operational control system, which ensures that the company's everyday actions comply with safety requirements for things like dispatching personnel and aircraft. And again, I think uh, you're right. I think that ICE may have something to do with this accident, so... Uh, we'll we'll keep our eye on that. See if anything else uh, comes up. And uh, also a follow up on uh, a news item about the uh, aircraft. Well, let's see, UK drone collision study where they uh, supposedly tested uh, aircraft uh, windows and drone and impacts and that kind of thing and. Uh, Let's see. Let me read from the report. A British drone collision study used as evidence for the government's flagship drone pilot registration law found that UAVs pose less of a risk to airliners than government officials and trade unions have claimed. The study, which the government refused to reveal in full, that's usually a red flag right there, despite being asked by industry and news media alike, is the key piece of supposedly scientific evidence backing its proposed drone bill. That parliamentary bill is due to be published in spring this year. It will create new criminal offenses targeted at flyers of drones that weigh more than 250 grams who fail to register with the government and pass mandatory safety tests before using their craft. Now, we all want that, right? I mean, we want to have these kind of uh, rules in effect uh, to keep, you know, uh, airplane and drone collisions at a minimum. Uh, but I guess the uh, a press release summary of the drone collision study, uh, first published when the government revealed its registration plans last year, was used by airline pilots trade union BALPA uh, as evidence of a proven drone collision threat. However, um, when you read the full study, Uh, They found that for airliners, the risk posed was far less alarming than both the union and the Department of Transport uh, Transport had claimed. Instead of penetrating cockpit windows, rigorous uh, tests of drones launched against Airbus A320 windscreen panes fitted to a test test bed cockpit found that drone airliner collisions will crack but not penetrate such windows. Um, So, you know, I don't know. Is is this uh, getting too... You know, too picky here, or oh, is it um, just? Uh, I mean, there, there's definitely a uh, a good reason for this article. It's being um, uh, it's being touted as uh, trying to um, uh, deal. You know, um, oh, the worst of my my words are disappearing, Jeff. Oh, I, this I, is I, catching. I, it's, it's- <laughs> yes, it, you must be catching what I'm having right now, yeah, which is like trying to make words They're trying that make to diss sense. this report, basically, <laughs> um, uh, and say, well, because uh, we found some inconsistencies and uh, it may be that uh, this drone didn't fully penetrate the windshield and what's more, they had to be going quite fast for it to happen. I think it's all that's in the report. Uh, I certainly read the report, the Balper report in full when it came out. Um, and uh, I'm going, well, if it doesn't 
entirely penetrate the windshield in this one example. Perhaps if they kept on going for long enough, they would have found one that did fully penetrate. Now, how much of a risk do you want to take, whether it goes part the way through the windshield or all the way through the windshield? I don't really care if it uh, makes a significant amount of damage to the windshield. That's enough for me. Um, so uh, I, they, they make it sound like this report is rubbish, so we shouldn't have any regulation on drones. I think that's what they're trying to uh, achieve. It's mm -hmm. the other end of the scale. It's written on a, with a bias for drone operators. Uh, I see nothing uh, in uh, what they're trying to uh, um, draw out of the uh, report that really justifies uh, a reduction in our strong attitude towards the danger that drones present when they're um, irresponsibly flown. So, so is this a case of the uh, media just um, like overreacting and trying to, you know, uh, squash fake news? And you know, that's a well, uh, common this term now. The reporter is trying to. Uh, and what you know, and, and are, are there any are there you know drone organizations you know formally uh, protesting the results of the study? Or not that I've seen. I didn't see in, that in the article. In great numbers, but uh, having read this and uh, another similar report um written from the drone operator's point of view they're certainly trying to say look you know the government uh, are trying to base all their legislation on a uh, a poorly conducted trial so it should go ahead the government should be allowed to do this and i'm going well i don't care uh you know it's pretty obvious to most of us that um there could be a significant amount of damage done, and whether it penetrates the windshield or takes out an engine. Uh, we haven't done any trials on that. Um, so, you know, we all still think that flying lumps of uh, metal and uh, lithium batteries around that weigh several kilograms in the path of airliners is dangerous. Anyone who tries to argue the opposite because they're trying to pick holes in a scientific study because it wasn't conducted to their liking. Um, I think, you know, well, that is wrong. And what's more, to solve it, we need to have a properly funded, fully funded government study uh, because don't forget, this was uh, funded by partly by Balpa, who are just a pilot's union, and we're trying to do what's safe, and they don't have uh, huge funds to uh, to you know, conduct. They need to increase study. your dues is what they need to do, so they have more funding to do these uh, studies. <laughs> yeah, they're in life's no, problem. Kidding. I'm already paying like 150 quid a month to uh, Balpa for my dues, so I don't want to have to pay more just to have another study. <laughs> what I want is the drone industry and the government and uh, perhaps uh, Farnborough to get together uh, the Royal Aircraft Association, or what it's called nowadays, so Quantico or whatever, uh, to get together and do some, and I'd like it to be done in America, and I'd like to be done elsewhere with where it could be properly funded and to prove one way or the other. But even if they prove that it's not possible to smash a drone right through an, air, an, air, an airliner's windshield, I still don't want to be mixing with these bits of kit. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, there you go. That is uh, everything that I had in the news folder for this show. And uh, that means that it's now time for us to move on to the best part of the show, which is, of course, your feedback. Captain, incoming message. We'll start off with uh, this from David. 
Jeff, Nick, Dr. Steph, and uh, Dana. This video popped into my feed, and then he has a link to a YouTube video uh, where we watch a, a captain, Captain Victoriano, uh, land a 747 on a short runway. I don't know how short the runway was, but um, and uh, so the the cockpit is fitted with uh, looks like a, a GoPro camera or something like that, and uh, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, to see how the captain. Um, really manipulates the controls to bring that uh, airplane down to the runway and land safely. And uh, David says, now I see why Miami Rick spends so long at the gym. Man, that looks like hard work. Please tell me the European and even the American Airbuses are more sophisticated. Best regards <laughs> as always. And uh, he says, what do you mean, uh, even the American Airbuses, they, they're all just Airbuses. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it doesn't matter where I guess it made. doesn't matter where they're made. Yeah, um, or who, or who flies so, them. So here's the deal. You know, I, I look at this thing and I'm thinking, well, you know, at first glance, it, it looks like he's, you know, really mani manipulating the controls a lot. But you know what? I If you ever pay attention to it when you're coming into land, I mean, if you have the presence of mind to think about it while you're um, manually uh, manipulate, whether it's the side stick controller or the uh, yoke itself. And I think it's much more pronounced with the yoke because it's like right there in front of you and other people can see and you can see the yoke that's in front of you that you're not touching moving around quite uh, interestingly. If you pay attention, most of the time we're looking at the window, we're looking at instruments, we're not really looking at the uh, controls and what we're doing with them. But um, there, there is a lot of movement going on, even with the even with the autopilot on, if you happen to look at what how the autopilot is flying the airplane, that thing is really moving around quite a bit, especially as you get lower and lower and closer to the runway. And I've seen video of uh, the uh, like a, a camera aimed at the uh, side stick controller, and I was kind of like, "Wow, I can't believe that there is so much movement and manipulation." We've talked about this on earlier episodes, Nick. Uh, that you know, you, it looks like that side stick controller is getting worn out. Um, and you're thinking, yep. is that really necessary? And of course, in the case of the uh, airplanes that have uh, fly-by-wire systems, they're probably taking half of those control uh, control inputs and saying, no, nah, I don't think we need to do that. No, we're not going to do that. But um, And of course, this uh, airplane, the 747, I'm not sure what version of it is, but it well, I guess they're, they're still not fly-by-wire, though, are they? The 777 is, but not the 747. So that's actually cables going back to um, hydraulic um, you know, manipulators. But um, anyway, I my take from this whole thing is I didn't really think that it was that unusual with mm -hmm. the motions that he was making. And, and Amar is watching mm -hmm. this video right now as, right. as we're speaking. What do you think, uh, Amar? Um, well, first of all, you fly an airplane that's uh, very similar to this. Half the size, but yeah, very similar. Um, but, you know, kudos to Airclips. I mean, I, I love their um, uh, th these videos. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's phenomenal. It's nice having that perspective. Um, it, it looks perfectly normal to me. Uh, I don't see, um, um, you know, in the Boeings, I do notice, I mean, you've got a big yoke in front of you. So uh, there is a lot of movement, uh, even with the autopilot. Um, so, you know, coming off of the Falcon, it was a fingertip airplane and, um, you know, the yoke hardly, um, well, you know, it would move, but not as much um, uh, as the Boeings. So um, I would imagine, especially with the with an airplane the size of the 7-4, I mean, you'd have to put quite a bit of input to, you know, persuade the airplane uh, to turn. Um, so um, it, it, it looks fine to me. Yeah. 
didn't look unusual to me no, either. No. And it didn't look like he was using like a lot of no. a lot of force to to move. Uh, it's probably, you know, if somebody who has not ever flown a very large transport category airplane uh, doesn't realize that, that there is a, a certain aspect of like mm-hmm. power steering. In right. it. It's not like you're right. not like my airplane where you're mm-hmm. actually moving control cables all the mm-hmm. way back to the control surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's kind of most mostly light to the touch. Right. So what do you think, Captain Nick? Well, um, Captain Alice always makes a another good remark. Does he? So well done, Al. Um, he he points out that uh, size stick deflection is not uh, going to move the controls surfaces. Uh, you're asking uh, the aircraft to, to achieve a roll rate or a, mm-hmm. a pitch rate. Uh, having said that, uh, of course, as you come closer to the ground in a landing, uh, it does blend into uh, direct law. So eventually you have got just literal control over the, the actual control surfaces and and that, um, that uh, normal flying law is sort of blended out so that you can, when you're close to the ground, the aircraft behaves very conventionally. Um, so what you're asking for is a, a rate. And quite often when you apply a rate in uh, the aircraft starts maneuver, you won't actually have um, got the flight controls to where you actually want them because the hydraulics, despite how powerful they are, they can't actually move those big flight controls as fast as we can thrash the stick or i'm guessing on a uh, more conventional airplane you can move the yoke so you could whack the yoke across but it's going to take significantly longer for the ailerons to actually reach that full deflection you've just demanded Uh, and before they get there you're quite likely to have centered the yoke now because you've made the correction you want to Uh, so um, you just want it to get to where you want it nice and quickly so you're going to throw the controls over there and then you're going to put it back to somewhere in the middle which is exactly what you wanted but um you're actually moving the control uh the control yoke or the control stick a lot the actual aircraft may not be um being changed in its flight path very much at all because uh, you're not leaving it uh, there long enough for it to have a big effect absolutely so bottom line is david nah that was no big deal okay thank you for your feedback though um yeah you do need to be big and beefy though to fly those old dinosaurs though. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> in a Whacking good way those. i mean how, how much do all those wires weigh when they you've got like got quarter inch steel cables go right the length of the aircraft that must, must be quite a bit of weight you've got to heave around it's not like you're doing it, you know, with any kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, it's not like your car where you've got uh, power steering, is it? Mm-hmm. All those old airplanes. So oh. that's why you've got such big muscles, Jeff. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's why. Yeah. And yeah. I've got two yeah. really sensitive dinky fingers. <laughs> okay. Well, um, maybe they were saving on weight and they just drained all the hydraulic fluid. <laughs> Oh, that that helps. <laughs> that does lighten things up a bit. All right. Uh, let's see. Moving on, we have some uh, feedback from Frick. To feed or not to feed? That is the question. Oh, great. I always end up sitting next to a baby. What? What did you just say? Still, we stop fussing. Not now, Lois. Hey, big man, turn around. If you've got something to say, say it to my face. Oh, you can't hear me now. All right, that's it. I was going to watch the movie, but forget it. For the next five hours, you're my b- 
Where? Where? My ears are popping and there's no way to console me. I'm hungry and possibly teething. Maybe I'm wet. Who knows? I'm a baby. Where? Where? That from the Family Guy show. Sorry about the uh, the harsh language. We'll take care of that in the uh, audio podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, send you such a good show, though. Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> so, uh, and that was Amar's idea, by the way. So, if you have any hate mail, send it to uh, Amar at gmail dot com. Well, that's probably not really his address. But, no, it's, uh, it's it's Amar at uh, airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> uh, so uh, Frick goes on. He uh, says uh, this sends this article: breastfeeding mom kicked off Spirit flight for noncompliance. A Houston woman, her elderly parents, and her two-year-old son were kicked off a Spirit. Fl- two-year-old son. Okay. We're kicked off a spirit flight at the George Bush Intercontinental Airport Friday morning for non-compliance with crew construction, <laughs> crew instructions after being told to stop breastfeeding her son and buckle him in the seat. Mia Rui or May, May, M-E-I, May Rui, a concert pianist and cancer researcher, was on her way to New York City to take part in a recording session for a clinical cancer study. Uh, trouble began when the 6.30 a.m. flight was repeatedly delayed due to insufficient de-icing solution, Rui wrote in a now-deleted post on Facebook. She began breastfeeding her young son in an attempt to quiet him down and get him to sleep on the three-hour flight. And this is a quote from her. Uh, Every parent with a young child can imagine you don't want to be that parent on the plane. It would be very embarrassing. I was just trying to avoid that. She claims a crew member asked her to stop breastfeeding and buckle her son into a seat before takeoff. She wrote that the airplane door was still open and asked the attendant for a few more minutes to finish nursing her son before the doors closed. However, a representative for the airline said reports confirmed that the door was already closed at this time. Uh, She says, I explained to them both that giving me a couple more minutes to finish nursing him would prevent him from crying and disturbing the other passengers. Seeing that I did not stop breastfeeding him promptly, they went back and at that point must have called the captain. I didn't want to cause any trouble, so I immediately pulled my son off and forced buckled him into the seat, which set off uncontrollable crying for the next 25 minutes to the great dismay and earache of everyone on the plane. She wrote that on Facebook. Uh, She and her family were then allegedly asked to leave the plane where they were met by airline staff and airport security who told them that they would not be allowed back on board. It's not like I was resistant. I put him in the seat, she told the Post. If they had shown a little compassion, it wouldn't have happened. They didn't have to let it escalate. Anyway, so it goes on. So she's upset um, because she was kicked off the flight because um, she was breastfeeding. But again... I kind of, you know, we we weren't there, but uh, it seems to me that, and we've seen these kind of situations before, we ask a passenger to do something, they don't comply in a reasonable amount of time, and then they finally say, and maybe they ask a few more times, and then they finally say, well, is this passenger going to be a problem once we're in the air, when we have a lot fewer uh, solutions to problems, and uh, they probably made the decision yeah, we might. We better take them off. And but the first thing that came to my mind was, wait a minute. So this lady is breastfeeding her child, but the child has a an assigned seat. Because I'm thinking this is a small like baby and 
it's probably going to be an infant in arms that doesn't have a seat. I think, how old is this kid? And I guess uh, it says right at the beginning, two years old. Now, you know, um, my wife breastfed our children to about the year point. I guess it's not unusual that some uh, mothers breastfeed longer than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seems to me like they were uh, a bit unsympathetic, uh, a little bit... um, uh, you know, we've got one way to solve this, and this is to get you off the airplane. Uh, it didn't look like they made much of an attempt to compromise. Uh, and quite honestly, the delay in getting them off the aircraft, and if they're carrying baggage, getting that off the aircraft is probably going to exceed the time she was going to do to finish up her quick breastfeed and get going. But there are lots of ways to solve these problems, and I think if you come together in a reasonable manner and try and work through them, they're generally speaking resolved without any hassle. It sounds to me like they were unusually heavy-handed, um, and you know, when you've got a breastfeeding woman with a very young uh, infant uh, who's going to get very upset, if you kick her and their entire family off the airplane, then that's almost going to certainly hit the news. So I don't know. I think people just need to think a little bit sometimes outside the box and go, what's the potential delay? Uh, What's going to happen here if we let the lady continue? Or perhaps just say, well, perhaps you could finish up as quickly as you can because, you know, we want to get going and you can't hold the baby. It's got a seat or whatever. But I'm with you. If it's a two-year-old, it should be quite happy to be uh, being held. I mean, that's that's all the way all the yeah, I think it's under aircraft. two, I think, is the rule in the in the U.S. Um, if it's okay. under two uh-huh. years old, then it can be a um, held and doesn't require a seat. But as soon as you hit the magic two years old, regardless well, yeah, of how could, big or small it is, it could be nearly three. Couldn't it? it could be two and eleven months. That's, that's a true. Size child. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, it seems to me that uh, we've got one side of the story, not the other. So uh, until we le- the article does go on to say that we were forced to remove a passenger from flight seven one two after they refused to comply with crew instructions several times while the doors were closed during taxi and safety briefing. So I don't know if they act, the the airplane was actually already moving and taxiing yeah, well, out. Or, that that makes it sound like it was. Yeah, it does. Uh, the way the words they use there. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Again, these these things are always well. You know, it depends on who you're talking to, what kind of story you're going to get here. But um, well, uh, they've issued a full refund. Yeah. So if the customer was really in the wrong and refusing to do the safe thing, then why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, Frick uh, main, mainly sent this in because he knows that uh, Captain Nick's, Nick likes this subject, <laughs> subject of breastfeeding. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know where he got that impression from. <laughs> I don't either. I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's enough of that. Um, Philip sent in some uh, very nice feedback. He said, uh, Hope you're all doing well and having a good day. I started listening to the podcast only a few weeks ago, and I'm pretty sure I've caught the APG syndrome, and I think I'm ready to submit my first feedback. This podcast that didn't take long. You must be very susceptible. Yeah, he must be very weak. <laughs> this <laughs> weak will <laughs> weak willed. Uh, hey, you're on. You're in my boat. This podcast has basically replaced music in my life. Uh oh, we're responsible for him not listening to music anymore. Darn it. Uh, we're sorry. Um, and I've been working backwards listening to the podcasts. I have discovered that it helps me to stay concentrated. Well, I hope the- he doesn't drive a bus because if he's working backwards, that could be very dangerous. Yeah, or just walking. I mean, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Watch out. Hey, where, where are you going, dude? Um, 
Anyway, I uh, discovered that it helps me to stay concentrated at the internship I'm doing, but at times I have to force myself not to laugh out loud and look like an idiot in front of my colleagues. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. Um, I'm switching departments in January, and I really hope I'll still be able to listen to the podcast while I'm at work. Yeah, I'm 20 years old from Switzerland and have been a fan of aviation for 10 years, and it never ceases to amaze me. My best memory from aviation must be when I was able to sit in the jump seat on a flight from Paris to Zurich on a major Swiss airline. Not too many to choose from. Uh, this podcast and flight sim, however, seems to have increased my love for aviation, if that's even possible, that I've decided to register for a pilot screening offered by the Swiss government slash military, which is specifically aimed at 16 to 21 year olds to identify if they would be suitable to start a career as an Air Force pilot, an airline pilot, a private pilot, or as an air traffic controller. If one passes the screening, you're invited to an aviation training camp where you will gain your first experiences in operating an aircraft. It's this Swiss gateway to becoming, or it's the Swiss gateway to becoming a pilot. If you don't pass the screening, that doesn't mean you can't become a pilot. However, flying lessons are extremely expensive here in Switzerland. Therefore, the camp is supposed to help young people to make a decision whether they want to take the leap and start a new career or start a career in aviation or not. Anyway, hopefully this isn't too long of a feedback. No, not at all. And I'm looking forward to every episode I haven't listened to yet. Wishing everybody blue skies from snowy Zurich. And again, that's Philip. And Philip, all of us uh, on the APG crew and in the APG uh, community are sending really, really good thoughts your way for you to uh, do extremely well in your pilot screening. And uh, please let us know how that went. And if you're selected to... Uh, be in that aviation training camp and uh you know oh, absolutely from there i mean if he ends up in the military i think, think the swiss have f-18 so uh, that would be a really neat airplane to get onto so uh, you think I you have any experience imagine, with that one uh, not a lot uh <laughs> i can just imagine what it was uh would be like i mean flying through the swiss alps in an f-18 i mean how cool would that be oh amazing amazing yeah. Yeah, and the Swiss pilots are—they're—they're they're pretty sharp pilots out there. So, yeah, cool. I wonder if, like the uh, Swiss Guard, they have to wear those funny clothes. There, so. I think they do. Yeah, yeah. or when they have flying? helmets that are painted in those funny colored hats. Yeah, yeah and they have big funny shoes. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> I hope not. Kind of no, kind of messes I, with the rudder pedal actuation. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, good luck with the camp. I mean, I think you'd enjoy it regardless. Uh, and uh, yeah, that would be fun. Absolutely. Anything to do with airplanes, if you're a true aviation lover, would be good fun. Yes. Okay, why can I find... Well, oh, here it is. Speaking I of it. rudder pedals, yeah, um, I think that's a good segue to another feedback that you got. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, head scratcher? Okay. Is that the one? Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can find it. Run. Okay. Let's move to uh, Amar one, thinks or, we have a good segue talking about rudder no, pedals. Wait, that may not be it. Sorry. No, that's Never not mind. it. Yep. Rookie mistake. Amar, let the professionals do this. Uh, yeah. Right. Back to me. <laughs> yeah. where, where are we going to find one of those? Uh, I don't know. But we should, all of us, <laughs> let the professionals do this. We're just rank amateurs for sure. Um, do we have something about rudder pedals? I, I, I thought there was. Um, hmm. Maybe not. Anyways, okay. Sorry, carry on. Hey, okay, thanks. 
Um, how about this then? Nothing to do with rudder pedals, but uh, this is from Nick, who is a former ramper. His thoughts on regarding uh, regarding ground flight deck communications during pushback and startup. We had a uh, some feedback about that uh, not that long ago, and he wants to put in his two cents worth. So take it away, Nick. Hey, APG crew and community members. This is Nick from Columbus, Ohio. I uh, used to be a former ramp agent for a U.S. airline that only flies the 737. And with that being said, I thought maybe I would give a little bit of feedback here in my two cents, if it's even worth that, regarding the recent discussion from episode 303 um, about the communications between the ground crew and the flight deck during a pushback and engine startup. Uh, I have to preface that by saying that I don't actually work for Acme Airlines, so it could be different at Acme and it could be uh, for nothing. But in my experience, the communications between the ground crew that's actually doing the uh, the pushback, driving the, the tug and communicating with the captain and first officer, that communication is very uh, scripted and uh, fairly cut and dry from the company point of view. And the company does that, you know, for a very specific reason. They're looking to standardize those communications across all aircraft fleets um, because they want it to be something from the ground crew point of view that anyone on day one can step into the job and, you know, know how to say, hey, you know, the inspection is complete, the bypass pin is in, and you guys are cleared to start engine two, then one, or whatever the communications are. The, uh, the ramp position is one that um, is not necessarily a skilled position, and so that's why they look to just um, kind of streamline streamline the communications and all of the, the tasks associated with it, like I said, so that anyone at any of the outstations can, can do the job. Um, and I think Dana was kind of hinting towards that, that the uh, ground crews don't necessarily differentiate their communications based upon whether or not it's a 737 or an MD-80. They're just going off of the, you know, script that they were given during their initial training. And, you know, Captain Jeff, I also see his point of view that, uh, well, I'm in an MD-80. Why do you care what engine I start? They're up high. They're not going to touch anything. You know, they're not going to suck anything in from the ground. And if I start one engine, you know, as opposed to the other one, it's in the same exact position more or less as the other engine. So, you know, what am I... Why do you tell me to start one and not the other? Um, again, I think what it comes down to is just what the company policies and protocols are, and the companies are the ones that uh, determine what it is the ground crew is going to say. Um, from my experience with my airline, we did have a set script you know, for things that we were supposed to say to the flight deck, and their responses were supposed to be scripted back to us as well, if you will. We had two different types of startup procedures. The first one was just your normal startup procedure. And with that, the uh, pushback driver would tell the captain that he or she was cleared to start engine two, then engine number one. The reason for that, the aircraft that I worked with was the 737, and those engines hang pretty close to the ground. So during the pushback, the wing walker would be located on the number two side, and if there was a problem with that engine, he or she would, would notice that fairly quickly and could alert the pushback driver, and we could, you know, stop the pushback, let the captain know that there was an issue. 
So that's why we would start two, then one. Uh, the other reason for that being that the jet bridge is pulled up to the number one side of the aircraft. That's kind of a secondary issue in and of itself. I don't think there's any real risk that um, the number one engine is going to somehow ingest something from, from the jet bridge. Uh, but I guess that you know could be a safety concern, and, and so that was part of it as well. The, the other type of um, start that we did was a, a non-normal start, and that would be um, an air start. So when the aircraft had an inoperative APU, we would use an air start unit. Now in that situation, uh, the procedure was reversed. And so instead of telling the captain that they could start the number two engine and then the number one engine, we would tell them that you're clear to start the number one engine and then the number two engine. Um, and again, on the MD-80, it probably doesn't matter because of how high up those engines are. But on a smaller, or I shouldn't say a smaller aircraft, but on an aircraft that has the engines lower to the ground, that communication can be very, very important. Uh, take, for example, the 737. The air start unit has to be positioned on the number two side of the aircraft because, as I said before, the jet bridge is on the number one side. Well, that air start unit has... Uh, a long hose that is inside of the safety zone and inside the ingestion zone for the engines. And not only that, during the air start, a member of the ground crew is actually directly underneath of the aircraft fuselage between both of the engines. And so if the crew's not paying attention, if the ground crew says the wrong thing, and you tell them to start the number two engine, you run the very real risk of accidentally ingesting the hose from the air start unit, or, uh, you know, in a very bad situation, potentially, uh, although unlikely, but still potentially, even ingesting a, a member of the ground crew. So, again, I think kind of what Dana was was saying was that the ground crew is not necessarily given a different set of instructions and communications for the MD-80, for the CRJs, for the 737, the 767, the A320, etc., etc. The ground crew has a fairly straightforward job regardless of what aircraft it is that they're working on, and so because of that, their communications are scripted. And I think, Captain Jeff, that that's probably why you hear the ground crew telling you, hey, you're cleared to start two, then one, one, then two, you know, what have you, whatever it is at, uh, at ACME. And, you know, to answer your question, does it matter which, you know, why why do they tell me this? Well, it, it really doesn't probably for the MD-80, MD-90. Um, I think what it is, it's just a force of habit that the company has told, you know, the, the ground crew, this is what you're supposed to say to every aircraft, regardless of, you know, what type of aircraft it is to simplify their job and make it something that's that's easy for someone to learn and, and become accustomed to. So anyways, hope that uh, makes sense. Don't want to beat a dead horse, but just thought I'd, uh, you know, <laughs> my two cents there. Thanks, guys. Keep up all the great work. Well, it matters to me, Nick. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, make a lot of good points there. Um, it, more, more than likely, it's the way they were trained and the they have canned scripts that they say and uh, really aren't thinking about what the actual meaning and, and uh, implication is and that kind of thing. So now I was just telling Amar while you were talking, sending or we were playing your feedback. I told him that when I hear something like 
uh, clear to start number two or whatever, which is a little bit of out of the ordinary. I just kind of understand that they, what they mean is the engines are clear to start and I just start up in the normal fashion. So yeah. Well, well they- we can't do that because, because uh, you know, where our engines are, the uh, some tugs can't uh, get us around a corner if we start the wrong engines. Uh, so, uh, you know, if they're going trying to do a sharp turn and we've got the wrong engines going, it's pushing against the tug and they're on the uh, side of the turn where they'd impinge a lot. Oh, yeah. they, they don't like that. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's important from that point of view. The other thing is, of course, uh, you know, your jet blast on one side of the aircraft might be playing on something that they're swinging through, whereas the other side it might not. So what I'll what I'll usually say is, uh, or the, what they'll usually say is, yeah, you're clear to start, they don't specify, and I tell them what order, and uh, I'm going to run them in. And if they if there's a problem, they usually come back and say, oh, can you hold off on the inboard engines or the outboard engines or whatever the, the request is? Because I can't see what's behind me, but... Yeah, I see. I, I don't see uh, that they should tell you which engines to start. I think they should, uh, unless there is a problem, in which case they say, uh, "Do you mind, or would you, you know, make it like the captain's choice <laughs> rather than theirs?" Yeah, Mar was saying the same thing. You know, the, the airplanes that he's flying now are have uh, engine mounted. Excuse me, engine mounted wing mounted engines. Engine mounted engine mounted, engine mounted wings. No. <laughs> there are engines that are hanging out there on the wings. Sure, you're a pilot. Yeah. Well, I try. <laughs> I've gotten this far with people thinking I was. Um, you done well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, on his uh, Falcon jet and uh, the airplanes that I'm flying, you know, with the T-tails and the tail-mounted engines, uh, it really matters not. But uh, good points made, um, both Nick and Captain Nick. So, uh, appreciate your feedback. And then, you know, Earlier, uh, Amar had said that, uh, that hey, that's a great segue talking about rudder pedals. He, we found the piece of feedback that he was searching for, and it was kind of uh, combined. It's kind of a combo feedback from. Well, um, yeah, I realize podcasting is not my thing. I'm glad I can find the <laughs> autopilot engage button so quick. Otherwise, I won't have a career. <laughs> Louisiana Steve uh, sent in a couple of uh, items here, and the second one he sent in was the issue with a uh, flight control. Uh, problem. Uh, a man who prosecutors said crashed a small plane in southeastern Virginia when his prosthetic leg caught, got caught in the aircraft's brake pleaded guilty Tuesday to flying without a license. Robert Gray Jr. entered the plea in federal court in Norfolk, Virginia. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Virginia said in a news release, Gray, 55 years old, has been around aviation for 40 years, buying and selling planes, and once had a student pilot certificate. That had expired. Court documents show. It's the thought that matters. Yeah. Well, you know, you you don't have to know that much to fly airplanes, right? Gray has a prosthetic leg and medical conditions that disqualified him from holding a pilot's license. On July 22nd, Gray crashed his 1972 Piper aircraft at Oomflit Airstrip in Suffolk, according to court documents. As a plane landed, prosecutors said, it went off the runway, spun halfway around, and hit several small trees. When first responders arrived at the crash, 
Gray, who was not hurt, at first denied flying the plane and said that the pilot was missing. <laughs> he was Nothing stuck under the rudder pedals. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I couldn't be the pilot because, look, I have a prosthetic leg. <laughs> uh, they weren't buying it. When law enforcers started to search for the allegedly missing pilot, Gray admitted that he was the only person on board the aircraft. A few days after the crash, Gray told a safety inspector with the Federal Aviation Administration that the crash was his fault. And uh, he lacks feeling on his right side because of the prosthetic leg. And it caused a leg. What was the name of that uh, hijacker that jumped out with all the money? D.B. Cooper. Yeah, perhaps he was the pilot. (laughs) Oh, he could have been, yeah. Yeah. Um, They never found him. (laughs) Caused the leg to become stuck on the aircraft's brake, causing it to to spin out on landing. That happens. Um, anyway, uh, let's see. Gray, who has mobility issues that require the use of a walker or motorized scooter, told the FAA inspector that he should not have been flying a plane because he can barely drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> man. Uh, thank you. getting Lu- better. <laughs> yeah, Louisiana Steve. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he knew he'd chuckle on that or at that. Um, let's see. Yeah. And the other thing that he sent in was uh, – uh, I was unlucky enough to be stuck in Atlanta for the recent power outage. Oh, sorry, Ooh, Louisiana Steve. While attempting to rebook online with Acme, I got the following message while attempting to pay. Shame on you, Jeff. Shame. And then he has sent an attachment that shows the uh, basically a screenshot of what he was looking at on his telephone. It was kind of rude. Uh, on this one screen that we're looking at here, and I'll put this in the show notes. You can look at it yourself. Enhance your experience. Make your trip as comfortable as possible. And then there's an ex- extra add-on fee, and it, it's entitled Airport Electricity for $139. So uh, the at the bottom, there's a button that says, no thanks, continue to be, continue to be stranded. And then the second button says, pay up. So... That's just a, a shameful yeah, – you're right, Steve – shameful that we were taking advantage of the situation to make some more, some more money. Absolutely. And that 139 bucks that's quite expensive for – Well, you know, electricity is not cheap, Nick. No. No. Well, speaking of airport electricity, I remember a couple of weeks ago we were just pushing back in Vancouver in the middle of the night. And it was coming down. Initially, it was RVR 5000, and I think it came down to – probably below uh, 1200 RVR at some point. So um, we pushed back onto the taxiway. Um, we were on the south side of the field and they were tower was just getting ready to switch the airport to um, low visibility operations. Uh, I guess they would have to reposition some lights, uh, maybe the stop bar, turn it on. Anyways, at that point there was a, an aircraft uh, just getting ready or it was actually rolling down the runway and they switched the airport to LVOP, uh, low visibility operation, and all the lights went out. Um, I think it was a dash eight. They rejected, um, on the runway. And I was thinking to myself, um, wow. I mean, that would be interesting. You're, you know, here you are flying a couple planning an auto land and you start seeing some lights and everything disappears. Um, that's, it's, it's pretty scary. I mean, you would, you would think, um, you know, with these massive airports, um, such as Atlanta and Vancouver and uh, the big airports, that there would be multiple redundancies that this is not even a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Anyways. That reminds me of a story we talked about uh, where um, I, I, I guess it was like a newly uh, certificated private pilot was flying with uh, somebody, a uh, couple people in his, I think it was a Cessna 172 or whatever. And 
uh, up flying around and all of a sudden all the power uh, went out on his airplane. And so he's struggling to communicate with air traffic control and try to find the airport and everything else. And um, the uh, pilot controlled lighting was on and he could see the runway and he was coming in and I, I don't know how high above the ground, maybe a couple hundred feet above the ground, all the lights went off. <laughs> and yeah. I think he had a handheld radio, so he yeah. could have you know, click the five times or whatever to continue because of the, the, the pilot controlled lighting, I believe only stays on for 15 minutes right, right. for each. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it was kind of startling. He, yeah. he said in the video, uh, but he had enough ambient light that he continued to a landing. Right. Right. You guys are reminding me that I'm heading off to uh, Lagos tomorrow. Oh, nothing could go wrong there. No, yeah. No, no, no we never have blackouts there. <laughs> no, there's, there's no VIP movement going to happen in the middle of the night where they're going to shut down the airport. It does remind me of a mate of mine who was though doing uh, the night vision goggle trials in the Phantom, and uh, you know they just acquired these bits of kit and they they weren't fixed on using you know the kind of a permanently specially made harness. They were just kind of jerry rigged up to see how well they were going to work, and they were very pleased with them. Uh, and they were up uh, um, flying some approaches into a little Scottish airfield, um, a Civi airfield. And um, he's doing these nine approaches, and he said, okay, now uh, I think I've got the hang of this. Will you turn all the airfield lights out? I'll make my next approach uh, just using the goggles. And uh, being a phantom, when you, uh, when you, even if you're doing a roller, you land the airplane very firmly. It's just kind of the Navy way. It wasn't designed to be flared. And uh, as he hit the runway, a little firmer perhaps than he expected, the MVGs fell off. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he's on the runway at night with no air. <laughs> Going very fast. He <laughs> 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 just kept everything in the middle, selected full burner, and uh, only thought an appropriate amount of time had gone by. He heaved back, and luckily they stayed on the tarmac. Wow. 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 <laughs> that deserves a wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, boy. Uh, you know what? Uh, I just realized that we really didn't um, get a chance to talk with uh, Amar a little bit more about, you know, how he got to where he is uh, as a uh, a freight dog, mm -hmm. uh, first officer. Uh, you know, we <laughs> we first um, um, learned about Amar from uh, being involved in the uh, APG community, and uh, I, I had a layover up in uh, Toronto, and we got together and had some good pizza and. Uh, uh, what else? Great conversation and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, you were a corporate pilot. Yeah. Very nice airplane that you were mm -hmm. uh, flying. Mm -hmm. I do. And, miss it. Yeah. and then uh, all of a sudden noticed uh, on the social media that uh, you announced that uh, you were leaving that cush job to uh, to fly for the uh, freight outfit. So uh, how did you get involved in flying to begin with? Um, well, I must it would have been maybe at the age of four or five years old that we uh, Took a flight on an L-1011 from Toronto to um, Jordan in the Middle East. And I think I had my uh, face imprint stuck on that window because I, I was looking out that window the entire flight. Um, and I think I was hooked then. Um, you know, the noises that the airplane made and, um, you know, just the thrill of um, a flight. So I was hooked. Um, I, I lived in the Middle East, uh, most of my young life and, um, moved back to Canada when I was, uh, ready to go back to school. Uh, finished up high school actually, uh, 
in uh, Mississauga, which is just outside of Toronto, and went to university. Um, really, I mean, to my parents, they they, they kind of had two careers. It's either you're an engineer or you're a doctor. And and I thought to myself, okay, well, you know, I'll try to. Um, I've always had an interest in medicine, and it's been something that I've uh, wanted to do. So uh, I went into McMaster University and uh, studying pre-med. Uh, met my uh, uh, my wife. Um, she continued on, and uh, she's a successful nurse. Um, so that was great. But I left the program uh, at year two and uh, decided to uh, pursue flying. At that point, I already had a, a private pilot's license, and um, so I decided to uh, pursue it. Uh, professionally and took one of those uh, one-year programs that gives you, you know, takes you from zero to hero uh, in a rush. And I did that. Um, when I graduated at the time with 200 hours, um, there was really very little jobs. Um, this was sort of post 9-11 era and it was kind of between 9-11 and 2007. So um, it's almost like every time I felt like I, you know, I've had the right experience for the right job, something would happen. Um, so anyways, I joined an outfit um, uh, out of Ottawa that uh, does uh, surveys um, in Cessna caravans and twin otters and other type of aircrafts, aerial, uh, aerial survey, low-level aerial survey, uh, flying airplanes, uh, you know, hand-flying them eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Uh, so that was great, great experience. Um, enjoyed it. And, um, that job left me, uh, due to the uh, economics at the time. So, uh, we brought most of the airplanes back. So it was interesting fairing a caravan across the Atlantic. Uh, that was, that was a lot of fun and, uh, came back, um, to renew my IFR at a local flying school and the chief pilot at the time who was doing the training, uh, offered me a job if I did my instructor rating. Uh, so I did that. Um, I instructed for just under one year. Um, it was great fun. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I really thought, um, it, it, you know, for me, naturally, I'm quieter. So <laughs> being an instructor um, really wasn't for me. I, uh, so I enjoyed it, met a lot of good people. And uh, so I left instructing and stumbled into the corporate world. Um, I flew... Um, smaller airplanes and then got onto the citation. Um, and, um, the company that I was working for, they had a medevac operation out of Toronto, um, on the citation. I was based, um, in Windsor. Um, it's near Detroit. Um, so I really wanted to get back to the Toronto area and the company I was working for, they had uh, Lear 35s and they were operating those uh, medevac around the world. Uh, so did that for about, uh, just under five years. Um, it was great fun. Um, you know, no kids at the time. So it was, it was easy to you know, pack your bag and who knows where you're going. Um, get called and I'd say, yeah, we're going to send you to Punta Arenas. And you think to yourself, where is that? And you do a quick Google search and it's like, you know, just near Antarctica. Um, and you do that three hours at a time in a Lear 35. Um, and the back is crammed with, you know, couple nurses and doctors. And, um, so it was a great experience. It was, uh, flying around the world with primitive airplanes. And, um, so I really enjoyed that, uh, left that to get the cushy, um, Falcon job. Um, it was, a it was sort of a, an ad in the hangar that I was at and, um, I applied, got the, got the job uh, and, uh, it was great. Initially it was a first officer position, 
you know, sit in the right seat, don't do much. Uh, very quickly that translated into uh, a captain position um, and uh, then got upgraded to fly the 900 as well. Uh, it was initially a Falcon 50 that I was hired to fly. Um, so that was great. But I, in the background, you know, as the years were unfolding and um, the airline world became profitable again and everybody was, you know, I was watching my students, some of my students, they were airline pilots. And I thought to myself, well, I better hey, wait a minute. I, I got a, I got an itch to scratch here. So, um, um, I, I learned about this, uh, cargo outfit and, um, the opportunity to go straight on to, um, the seven, five, seven, six, uh, with promises of, uh, quick upgrades was, uh, pretty interesting. So I thought to myself, well, um, this is the right time to do it. Um, and, uh, I made the switch. So it's, and here we are. Here I am. Yeah, Flying the 7576, got it all type rated, and uh, yeah. who knows where the where the future will lead you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I'm sure it's, it's going to be good stuff. It, it's exciting. I mean, I've, I've been enjoying every minute of it, so the, it's it's wonderful. It's really not the destination. It's it's the journey, so it, it's phenomenal. You know, you, you made an – we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording today, and uh, you made an interesting um, point um, or observation or uh, part of your history where you were trying to be, uh, you know, look, Amar, I mean, listen to him. This guy is a, just a great guy, um, ethical, moral, et cetera. And he wants to do the right thing. And so, uh, the, the cush job that he had, he wanted to give his employer, you know, plenty of time for, for them to find a replacement for him. Mm-hmm. And so we, you gave him like three months, three notice. months. Yeah. And, uh, that it, it wasn't until you got hired by this cargo outfit that you realized that that three months was <laughs> a very critical thing, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as seniority yeah, goes, because in this yeah, business, to, seniority is everything. Yeah, 15 numbers. I think they went and hired uh, b- between the time when I handed in my notice and I, I got on the line. So uh, now I'm learning what seniority, seniority, Yeah, so seniority 15 numbers means. at yeah. uh, my outfit is nothing. Yeah. Uh, you, you wouldn't even notice it, right. but, but for an uh, you're, outfit, yeah, uh, with 200 pilots, it's, yeah, uh, it's much more significant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So learn the lesson lesson out there. If you're, you know, you're working to be a professional airline pilot mm-hmm. or uh, whatever, uh, yep. you should, uh, try to get on with that major company as quickly as you can or whatever company that mm-hmm. has a seniority based system, because it really does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, good. Um, Started listening to the uh, airline pilot guy show from pretty early on, right? Yeah, 2011. Um, I was a medevac pilot at the time. My daughter wasn't born. So um, I, I think it was right from day one. Um, I remember the Air France uh, episode and that sort of hooked me in. It was uh, it was wonderful. And I went back and listened to a Catholic pilot, which I, I really love and I miss. And man, a lot of times feeling bit nostalgic i'll go back and listen to some of the oh. earlier episodes so <laughs> i don't like oh gosh yeah. <laughs> wow yeah I really didn't have any idea what i was doing of course it still sounds that way so yeah. never mind no it's uh, a great show it's 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 wonderful watching it uh, evolve and uh here i am um co-hosting I, I didn't think that would ever happen so um yeah i mean in hindsight like probably the worst thing that i did was actually make it into um a show where i had other co-hosts <laughs> i mean i think it really went downhill from that point <laughs> What wouldn't you say, Nick? Scraping the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, great to have you, Amar, as part of our community. Thank you. And uh, great yeah. to see you. Okay. 
Um, why don't we do uh, a piece of audio feedback, and then after that uh, might be a good time for this week's installment of uh, Plain Tales. But before we do that, let's uh, hear from Stefan. Hello, Captain Jeff. Hello, APG team. Hello, everybody. Once again, a big thank you for your show. This is Stefan calling with greetings from Hamburg, Germany. You might recall that I'm flying the A380 on the left-hand seat. Right now, I'm listening to episode 301. You were talking about diversions and discussing the reason why pilots and airlines often choose to return to the departure airport when they cannot land at the scheduled uh, uh, intended point of landing or the scheduled destination. I can give you another reason. Perhaps up to half of the passengers come from there. They wanted to fly to B because they have an, a business meeting and now they would arrive so late that for some of them, even for private travelers, it doesn't make sense anymore to go to the intended destination. So it's often sometimes helpful them helpful for them to return to the departure aerodrome. But uh, actually, this is not the reason I give you this feedback. I'd like to give you a first-hand description of a diversion I recently had. In my career, I had 15 diversions, and most of them due to technical reason, some of them because of weather, but that was the first one, first one uh, because of a medical case on board. So it might be also interesting for Dr. Steph. It was during a flight from Europe to the States along the North Atlantic organized track system. So we were already over the open ocean. I was in my break. You folks might recall that long haul flights often fly augmented. That means they have one or up to two additional crew members on board. In our case, we had one senior first officer, which come late on very handy for our trip. During this break, one passenger, an elderly man, complained about heart problems. We later found out that his own peacemaker shocked him twice shortly after takeoff. The cabin crew called for a doctor who was assisted with uh, two nurses, one of them proficient even in intensive care. As the situation worsened, my colleague decided to wake me up for my break a bit earlier. When I entered the cockpit, they already arranged a telephone call between the doctor and a medical helpline my company has a contract with. On the other hand of this hotline, there are professional doctors who assist us as a crew and the medical trained helping passengers. They are also very familiar with the things we can do on board and we cannot do on board with the equipment we have. And also, which is very important, this team is very familiar with possible diversion airports. Well, not only about airports uh, generally, which are suitable for aircraft type, but more if the airports are suitable for the kind of disease or sickness our passenger have. In example, if you suspect a stroke, it is very handy to divert an airport which has a stroke facility close by. In our case, they recommended a diversion and together with the medical hotline, we decided that Kefrevik is a very good airport. In addition to that, half hour later, we would have entered a predicted and active zone of turbulence. And you can imagine treating a sick passenger with everybody being buckled up doesn't work well. We announced our decision 
uh, to divert to the medical helpline and they informed our company. All this happened shortly before 30 West. We were in contact with Shenwick Control via CBDLC. We requested uh, medical diversion to Keflavik and it took a minute or two and we got the answer. Clearance to Keflavik is not possible at flight level uh, 380, suggesting continuous uh, contingency procedure descent down to flight level 290 and then you may proceed direct to Keflavik. So now we have to go in the details of the North Atlantic track system. The North Atlantic organized track system are a set of number from four up to believe seven tracks running parallel across the Atlantic Ocean from flight level 290 up to flight level 410. They are recalculated two times a day, optimized westbound during the day and optimized eastbound at night. Always optimized against or with the actual wind. The separation between those tracks is a half or a full degree latitude, corresponding to 30 or 16 nautical miles in distance. If an aircraft has to leave the track system fast, it must apply the contingency procedure, which means it has to first fly parallel to the actual track by 15 miles, so in the middle between two tracks, before it can start descent below the altitude band of the track system. So in our case, we first flew the 50 miles uh, it was right of track and then we started to send a flight level 290, informing everybody via the emergency frequencies and the air-to-air -air frequencies and then proceeded direct to Keflavik Airport. We informed ATC about the initiation and completion of the procedure. Shemek wanted to know the coordinates of the turning points to by Keflavik to recalculate our track to provide separation between other aircraft. During the whole procedure, I was still sitting behind my two colleagues on the observer seat to do all the organizing work like informing the cabin crew, discussing details with the chief flight attendant or purser, and of course informing all passengers. In addition, I supervised the recalculation of fuel and landing data for Keflavik before I started to take my seat up front left. We also started and informed Shadenwick that we needed to dump fuel in order to be as close as possible to the maximum weight, maximum landing weight. The uh, A380 has a very complex fuel system with 11 fuel tanks, which usually runs in automatic modes. That means usually the fuel is automatic distributed between the tanks to optimize for CG and wing loading. Four of those tanks, the main tanks, can hold up to 80 tons of fuel. Those fuel in this tanks you cannot dump overboard. Well, to make a long story short, we ended up being 21 tons over the maximum landing rate. I know that sounds bad, but you should know that every aircraft is certified to land even at its maximum takeoff head, just in case the crew decided decides to immediately return to an airport for a safe landing after takeoff. The only restriction is that the airplane is certified only to approximately half the normal descent rate upon touchdown compared to a normal landing. So one hour and 20 minutes later, we landed in Keflavik. I made a nice uh, overhead landing within limits and uh, the ground control directed us to a big open ramp where we just parked and where there was enough room left for us to taxi out later on our own power.
They provided stairs and a medical team entered the aircraft to take care of the sick passenger. Right behind him, there were a custom and a police officer. In my opinion, it looked like they were, that, they were more, that it was more important for them to get the customs uh, declaration uh, right and to make a copy of my password than to get the data of the sick passenger. And now everybody had to be patient. We needed to refill the aircraft and that took quite a bit of time. We needed two trucks and the pump system of those two trucks were not very fast. Altogether, we had a ground time of two hours and 20 minutes. So that took me ample of time to take care about several things. An example of loading luggage of the uh, deboarding passenger, the elderly man and his wife. Get technical support regarding the overhead landing. And most important thing, to check with my crew about the upcoming duty time extension. Since we, had a, we were an augmented crew, so we had the senior first officer on board, And the cabin crew had nice crew rest facilities and a planned minimum rest time of 90 minutes. They even had more, by the way. Our flight was already scheduled with a maximum duty time of 17 hours. However, it was clear that we will exceed those 17 hours. We needed an extension. Prior to this decision, I have to check with my crew uh, if they are fit for the extra duty. And since we had this long waiting time, I took the chance to personally uh, check every crew member if he is fit for that extra duty. At the end, we continued our flight to our destination and uh, we did that with a duty time of 18 hours and 20 minutes. Think about that. During our flight, the third shift of the ground staff working back at home base had already started. Due to the extension of the duty time, we also needed to extend our rest time. That's the regulation. The station at our destination asks ask me if we could shorten the rest time, which I also can, do, can decide as a commander, in order to meet the schedule of the next flight the next day or the return flight. But I refused. I said we needed to have the longer rest time. So the outbound flight back to Europe the next day was delayed due to our rest time restriction. But uh, well, at the end, we still landed on time uh, in uh, Germany since we flew a bit faster and we had favorable tailwinds. A diversion can be a very busy thing for the crew, cabin and cockpit as well. Since a lot of organiz organization work has to be done, the cabin crew has to do uh, several services. And in here, in this case, I spare you with some details. But it was worth it since later on I found out that the sick passenger was well. Well, the time I'm speaking this feedback, we still have four days to Christmas. I don't know when or even if you play this feedback. So just in case, I wish you and your team and everybody else happy holidays and a happy new year as well. And as we say in German, ein guten Rutsch ins neue Jahr. And in just in case you do lay this... Uh, Well, this feedback will be played even in, in, the, in the distance future. I wish everybody a happy Easter as well. Once again, a big, big thank you for your show, and I'm happy for the next, uh, happy to wait for the next episode. Thank you. Bye bye. Very funny, Stefan. Hey, happy New Year. That works. We're not anywhere near Easter, so you know. But uh, that was funny. Very nice, uh, informative uh, feedback to kind of indicate all of the things, the ramifications of 
uh, decisions, diversions, etc. And uh, there were some really good comments in the chat room as well regarding this. Uh, I think uh, Brian made a good point. He says, can you imagine this situation with an, quote, automated aircraft or autonomous aircraft? Um, There are so many decisions being made that requires a human brain to uh, do all the uh, calculations and understand the ramifications of your actions, et cetera. And uh, very informative. Thank you, Stefan. Absolutely. It was good stuff. Yeah. All right. Now, with that, why don't we do this week's installment of Plain Tales? Mm-hmm. Yoo-hoo. Here we go. Where is it? Here it is. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, The Logbook. My first RAF logbook starts on the 24th of January 1975 with a flight in a chipmunk, incorrectly spelt with an O, like a member of a religious order devoted to chip potatoes. It was Whiskey Papa 871 and with Squadron Leader Dummer the boss of the RAF Church Fenton Primary Flying Grading School. It lasted 50 minutes, and we flew Grad X-1, performing one landing. So begins one of three books which encompass 19 years of the most fun flying a chap could have. I thought I might occasionally dip into these books to see if any stories emerge that might be interesting to recall. A few months after that chipmunk flight, I'm up the road at RAF Linton on Ooze, uh, the rather dubious name for the local river, and climbing into a Jet Provost Mark III to begin flying training in earnest. I note that it took me two flights, totaling one hour and forty minutes, to get through the straight and level exercises, before I was allowed to start turning, climbing and descending. Trip 8 had me doing the dangerous and highly complicated 45 degree angle of bank turns. Wow, what a fun time my instructor, soon to gain the moniker Tricky Dicky, must have had. First jet solo came at trip 14 after 10 hours and 50 minutes and consisted of a 5 minute circuit. Not exactly stunning stuff, so I'm going to leaf forward a few pages before I send you all to sleep. I see a few repeated trips during basic instrument flying. Obviously my grasp of IF wasn't as good as I remember. Plenty of radar recoveries and precision approach radar landings, and eventually I'm put before an instrument rating examiner to get my basic instrument flying grading. I guess it was a relief to pass that and get into some more exciting flying with my introduction to low level and lots of general handling which would have involved spins, stalls and aerobatics. We were all told to develop an aero sequence that tested our ability to stitch a series of aerobatic manoeuvres together into a smoothly flowing demonstration of our skills. Sent off on our frequent solo trips, we would head off out over the Yorkshire Dales to practice. 
To see if we could keep our manoeuvres properly aligned, we needed a feature under us that would show us if our noddy stall turn had kept straight or if we had flown a squint loop. Much favoured by the students was the beautiful tree-lined avenue leading up to Castle Howard. Long, gun-barrel straight, and almost perfectly north-south, it was ideal, but more than once I was in some complicated outside turn into a three-quarter slow roll, followed by a half-cubinate blah, when the red and white flash of another student's JP would cream past the canopy, because they had picked exactly the same spot to practice. Ah well, it was a big sky. Well into the course now, it was time for night flying. Usually we flew visually, navigating from well-learned landmarks, the city of York, the flat dales, the coast around Scarborough and Flamborough Head, avoiding the noise restriction over the Flamingo Park Zoo and keeping an eye out for the Great Northern Road with its line of RAS stations, Elvington, Churchfenton, Linton, Dishforth, Topcliffe and Leeming. At night, however, it all looked different. Huge black spaces interspersed with blobs of twinkling lights that made Huthswaite look just like Easingwold and Ampleforth resemble Nunnington. York looked just like a huge mass of illumination that stretched well beyond its usual limits, and on a clear night the vast glow from Leeds and Manchester looked so close we feared we had strayed off course. On our solo navigation exercises, no one ever wanted to be off first. We all liked to look ahead and see the comforting stream of anti-collision lights in front, confirming we were going the right way. Heaven only knows what would have happened if the first guy ever got lost. He probably would have played Pied Piper to the next twenty students, leading them a merry dance all over Yorkshire. There was a story that one foreign student was so nervous of flying his solo Navex, he spent the entire trip parked up in a remote corner of the airfield with his lights off, just making the required radio calls and never actually getting airborne. Then came our eagerly awaited land-away navigation trip. My instructor at that point was the lovely Mike Franks, in a previous incarnation, Mike had flown with the Royal Navy on board a carrier, Ark Royal, I think, flying the remarkable Fairy Gannet airborne early warning aircraft. In the 50s, the RN had used Douglas Sky Raiders in that role, but the Gannet was the British-built replacement. It was a damned ugly monster of a machine powered by an Armstrong Siddeley double Mamba turboprop firing two contra-rotating bladed props around. Its wings could contort via a strange double-folding mechanism to save space, and under the belly there was a pregnant bulge that housed the radar scanner. Mike had made a faux pas when taxiing off from the runway at Lossiemouth when he lifted his gear instead of his flaps, and unfortunately the undercarriage interlocks failed to prevent his ugly monster from settling down onto its radome whilst the props beat a tattoo on the concrete taxiway. 
We were allowed to choose which base we landed away at, but Mike kept dropping hints that a visit to his old Royal Naval Station at Yeovilton would be great fun. We flew low-level to Shawbury, refuelled and then transited to Yeovilton, where I was introduced to the delightfully confusing world of the Navy. Despite being on the land, the base behaved as if it was at sea. To leave the airfield was to do a run ashore, the toilets were the heads, and everyone seemed to be drinking horses' necks. I spent a very pleasant evening with the fish heads, being called a crab, before getting some sleep. The next day was free, and I had already worked out that if I rented a car I could get from Yeovilton to Winchester fairly easily to see my girlfriend, who was at teacher training college there. All went well until I decided to stay the night and drive back early in the morning. When I woke, I realised that I had overslept by several hours. In a cold sweat, I thrashed back to the airfield and looked for Mike in the breakfast room. No sign of him. I blagged a lift to the flight line and there he was, sitting, strapped into the jet, slowly drumming his fingers on the canopy rail. I sheepishly climbed in beside him, and once I got strapped in, he clicked on his microphone and said just one thing. Take us home. Those were the only words he spoke for the whole trip. I carefully flew the high-level Navex back to Linton, and he climbed out without looking back whilst I tidied up the cockpit. The debrief consisted of one sentence. Don't ever do that to me again. Lesson learned, I guess. I must have made an impression on the girl, however. She married me, and we're still going forty years later. After 115 hours, I'd finished with the Jet Provis Mark III and moved on to the slightly more powerful and pressurised Mark V. I see sortie after sortie of formation flying, general handling, aerobatics, low-level navigation. We were down to 250 feet with an instructor and 500 feet when solo. With some 200 hours behind us, it was time to get our wings and move on to fast jet training at RAF Valley in Wales on the Folland Nat. My first trip was with my new instructor, Flight Lieutenant Ray Pilly. Ray was an ex-Phantom pilot who came to RAF Valley through an interesting route. Previously based in Germany at RAF Bruggen on 31 Squadron, Ray was flying a recently modified aircraft which had changed the Phantom's wing fold system from one operated from the cockpit to one that was controlled by the engineers from the wheel well. On this aircraft, the wings had been spread but, through an oversight, not locked. The cockpit warning lights had been disabled as part of the modification, so the only confirmation was a little orange pin that stuck up from the wing when unlocked. Unfortunately, this pin had been oversprayed by camouflage paint during a recent respray and was almost invisible. Ray did his walk around, but failed to notice the protruding spigots. As they tried to take to the air... The wings folded, and the aircraft pitched up nearly into the vertical. 
The Phantom danced on its reheats at about 100 feet for a short while, but was obviously going nowhere, so Ray ejected, only half a second ahead of his navigator, who had had the same idea. They were so close that Ray's seat rocket lightly toasted his navigator, and they landed not far from their aircraft, which itself came down only 100 feet from the nuclear QRA sheds housing four nuclear-armed F-4s. Trip 3 on the Nat was a practice diversion to Shawbury. It was the sortie that killed my fellow student Ash Smart, which I talked about on the plain tale Death of a Pilot on APG 209. My logbook gives few clues about the trips I flew, just a list of exercise numbers until I come up to my final navigation test. I developed a bad habit of messing with the main gyro compass, and whereas I thought I was correctly synchronising it, I was actually doing the reverse. As we all know, a one degree error in heading will displace you one nautical mile from track for every 60 nautical miles you fly. At 420 knots in the Nat, it didn't take long to do 60 miles, and I was quickly getting miles from my intended track. I was given a senior instructor to fly with, Rick Peacock Edwards, or RPE as we all called him. A hugely experienced pilot who flew Hunters, Lightnings, Phantoms and then the Tornado quickly worked out what I was doing and after a few extra trips he had me back on track in more ways than one. After the Nat it was time to get over the runway to 3 Squadron which flew Hunters. We converted to the Hunter at Valley to save time when we got to our tactical weapons unit, where all our flying would be on the venerable fighter. After three dual trips, I have proudly written Hunter F Mark VI, First Fighter Solo. That first Hunter Solo was a revelation. The side-by-side two-seater was a completely different aircraft to the single-seater, and after doing my walk-around, I gazed up at the closed canopy and wondered how the hell it was supposed to open. I didn't remember reading about any external controls for it, and I was stumped. Rather than displaying my ignorance, I said to the line mechanic who was seeing me off, I say, old chap, would you mind opening the cockpit for me? He gave me a look that spoke volumes, and obviously thought I was the laziest bloody student he had ever had the misfortune to meet. Reaching up with one finger, he rolled the canopy back on its rails until it was open, and then folded his arms. Blushing, I climbed in. There were no external controls on the single-seater because, when unoccupied, the canopy was declutched from the electric motor and would roll back and forth quite freely. We were all briefed on how fast the single-seaters were, but nothing could prepare me for quite how quickly things were going to happen. With no tanks, weapons or even gun ports on the Valley Mark 6s, they were probably the fastest hunters around and things happened quicker than I ever expected. Like most students, I expect, particularly in the unfamiliar layout of this new cockpit, I oversped both the gear and the flaps as I fumbled to find the controls in time. 
I had no idea what it would have been like to steer a bobsled down the crest to run, but after that solo, I felt like I'd done just that. It took days to wipe the smile off my face. With that short course out of the way, it was time to head down to RAF Broadie and to join Strike Command. We flew a combination of the Hunter Mark 6A, Mark 7 and Mark 9. It wasn't a long course and we spent most of our time learning the academics of bombing, strafing, firing rockets and air-to-air gunnery. We regularly flew in four-ship tactical formations, but I see nothing remarkable except for a gunnery exercise, called off because a boat strayed into the target area, which was on the sands at Pembrey Range, and the day I scored 72% with Sneb rockets. Of note, our squadron boss was the irrepressible Hoof Proudfoot, an ex-Harrier pilot who wore the Air Force Cross for exceptional airmanship after safely landing a Harrier with a total electrics failure at night. He flew as an exchange pilot with the US Marines and later became an airline pilot. He became involved with the historic aircraft collection at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford and went on to fly a P-51 Mustang in Steven Spielberg's movie Empire of the Sun. Sadly, he died displaying a P-38 Lightning in 1996. Having thrown my body at the ground in the Hunter with great success, since I generally missed, it was now time to move on to the Phantom. I was starting to see a link between the instructors that I was being given. Were they all having their hands slapped? My next mentor was the lovely Roy Lawrence, whose claim to fame was to shoot down a Jaguar in Germany with a live sidewinder. That story is in APG 234, whoosh, bang, oops, but I think I'll leave my exploits in the Phantom and the rest of my career to a later date. Another entertaining and informative plane tales by the old dot pilot. Thank you, Nick. Excellent. All right. I have, I'm so glad that reading out my logbook, it's <laughs> <People laughs> great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I was looking at the, the picture that you included of your uh, logbook and you have the, uh, what do they call that? Dymo, dy- Dymo labor, label? Oh yeah, that's right. Dymo tape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I used to have one of those things. I don't know what happened to it. They well, still make it was, those things? It, it not, was the not most that really thick stuff, right? I haven't seen those. It was the most modern thing going when yeah. I was uh, had my logbook. Yeah, you turn the wheel around and press really hard, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was the fella. Nick, did your logbook have a comment section? Uh, yeah, at the back we uh, used to have to. Uh, uh, we had a write up every uh, an annual write up, and the, the comments were written there. Is is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just wondering if you if you put down some personal comments as well. Um, oh no, no, I just uh, I just appended a few uh, just very cryptic remarks at the end of a trip. I never actually, uh, I mean, some guys glue in pictures and all that kind of stuff, but uh, no, for me it was an absolute chore doing my logbook. I used to hate it because my maths has never been particularly good, and uh, after a few years flying, I got it thrown back at me by my flight commander who had to oversign the monthly uh, summaries, saying, look, Anderson, none of these bloody numbers uh, add up. So... (laughs) 
he said, and what's more, looking back, they haven't added up for years. So I had to go through and sharp pencil all these trips to try and make all that. And it like took me a week and he kept saying, where's that bloody long book? Uh, and, uh, you know, even to the uh, day I left the Air Force, the numbers never really, uh, you know, all equaled. <laughs> Shame, really. <laughs> Thank God for computers. I do it on the phone now. You probably kept a better diary with uh, all the pictures that you took. Uh, during yeah, I have got a pile of photo albums yeah. from my Air Force days. It's about four feet tall. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. Some of the pictures that I've seen, it's, it's amazing. Well, that is fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. Fun, yeah, and I have nothing. Nothing but memories in my head. That's the way to oh, do it. Memories. Ah, in my head. Speaking of heads, head scratcher is what Ron writes. He says, uh, hi, ABG crew. Here's what I've been scratching my head for or f head at for years. My local airport, Teesside Airport. Um, the main runway is runway 0523 and has been since the mid 70s. But I'm certain it used to be 0624. And I'm certain the runway hasn't moved. How can the coordination of the runway change? Can anyone of you guys explain this one? Thanks for the thanks for the show, guys. And that's from Not So Big Ron from North Yorkshire. Well, I think that you just didn't notice, Ron. They moved it ten degrees, right? Yeah, that, all the airfields are on a big turntable. That didn't hasn't he spotted that? I guess not. Definitely. Maybe it just happened yeah. so slowly that uh, that uh, he hasn't noticed. But I think that uh, Amar uh, has the answer for this one. Well, I mean, simply, I think it's just. Um... Uh, you know, Ron, as, as you know, the, the runways are aligned to uh, magnetic north. Um, so, um, magnetic north. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a key to this, what's happening here. Right. So, so oh, no, okay. I was going to say, uh, cause I already noticed oh, that I was gonna, pulled uh, up a uh, magnetic declination. I was going to look at that, but you know what? I'm not even going to attempt to read it. So, yeah. So uh, the magnet, you know, the, the true North, the North pole, the, mm -hmm. uh, whatever is, is always, it's doesn't change. It's like, that's, that's a point that is there forever. And the magnetic North is a, a mass of, of, uh, magnetized, um, I don't know. What is it called? What is that stuff that's underneath the, in the core of the earth or uh, near the, I don't know. Um, magma? Magna? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, magma? maybe. Uh, uh, anyway, we have an iron core to the earth. It's the we? stuff that uh, when you use a magnetic compass, it points to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is that uh, that shifts over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you just pulled up on the Wikipedia, that's called magnetic declination. Mm -hmm. And uh, so over time, this changes. And then um, if you happen to be in an, a place in the uh, world where North Pole and uh, the magnetic north align perfectly from where you're standing, then everything is basically the same. Uh, you know, true north and magnetic north is always going to be the same. And your, your runway is probably not going to change mm -hmm. uh, very much or it's going to be a lot longer before the – well, I guess we should back up a little bit. The reason why we name runway certain numbers is not just pulling it out of the hat. It's right. uh, based on the mag, uh, the the heading, uh, magnetic heading of the runway, and if, as the magnetic pole changes over time, so does the the actual heading of the uh, runways. And I believe it's uh, so. Let's say let's use zero uh, five zero. Let's say that's our actual magnetic um, heading on the runway. And so that would be obviously runway zero five. Uh, but as it 
moves over time to 051, 052, 054. And then I think finally, is it the 055 where it will be, um, you know, carried over to the next uh, 06 point? I'm, I'm not sure what the cutoff is, mm-hmm. but it's either they round it to the next, the mm-hmm. next number. And uh, so when this magnetic declination takes place, uh, and it hits a certain threshold, then it goes, okay, now we have to call this runway 06 instead of mm-hmm. 05. Yeah. I don't know if I did a yeah. very good job with that, but yeah. Uh, of course, the, uh, the North and South Pole have swapped in several times over millennia, and I believe we're actually due for a flip-flop before long. Hmm. Um, so That's going to screw uh, up everything. really confuse everything when all of a sudden all the northerly runways become south. I would have <laughs> hoped by then we'll be doing everything in true. True North, uh, yeah, you know, I hope so. to the the one that Jeff mentioned, the the North Pole that where the world spins around the axis of the world. Whereas, of course, the magnetic pole just uh, moves around at random and drifts across. And uh, uh, you can tell the difference between the two because the little dotted lines that go across a map called isogonals <laughs> that tell you the variation. And, of course, uh, Amar will be very familiar with that because there's usually a huge variation in the northern climes of uh, Canada. And, in fact, there are a lot of airfields up there, uh, Amar, where they don't even use magnetic uh, headings at all, on the, even on the VORs. Isn't that right? They, everything's uh, orientated to Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's precisely right. Yeah, yeah I know that yeah. Uh, long-range navigation systems, once you get above a certain latitude, then it's just all uh, aligned to true. Yeah, I used to love it on a map when you uh, used to pass the uh, line which uh, was the beginning of uh, Compass Unreliable, and then you keep going north, and then it would eventually say, you know, in an area, Compass Useless. (laughs) (laughs) It's so unreliable, it's completely useless. (laughs) Don't even get the darn compass out. Forget it. Nope. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because it's not always based on latitude. I mean, we used to fly to Forbisher Bay, Iqaluit, quite a bit, and uh, Iqaluit is still in magnetic, uh, and Rankin Inlet is quite a ways south of uh, Iqaluit, and uh, that's in uh, in true as well. So, um, well, the magnetic pole is somewhere in Greenland, isn't it? So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's not even in Canada anymore. No. I don't know where, where it's heading. I'm not kind of sure. Perhaps. And how fast is it heading? I mean, how fast does that darn thing? travel well it actually uh, you can it, it gives you on the bottom of a decent map it'll tell you how uh, fast the variation is moving so because obviously you might get a map that was drawn in 1975 and you're now looking at it in uh, 2018 and uh, you'll want to know uh, if the isogonals have changed and it will actually there say at the bottom uh, what the variation changes per year. So you can go, okay, it's one half degrees uh, east or west per year. So I can then calculate the time uh, between now and when the map was drawn and how much the variation is and how much extra I have to take on or, uh, or take off or add on. Very, very good. So I, I hope that uh, not-so-big Ron uh, got his answer. It's just that. ways to confuse, confuse, confuse us, Ron, because uh, even when you get the weather, I mean, there's times where it's in true and times it's magnetic. So, um, And in some areas, it can make uh, quite a difference, uh, especially uh, with higher winds and crosswinds. Um, so, yeah, uh, I agree with you, uh, Captain Nick. I wish uh, we can all agree to uh, one unit and uh, whatever that is, and it'll just make life so much easier. 
Yeah, but there'd be all those damned Americans who want to use compasses. <laughs> <laughs> whiskey compasses. We like yeah. our whiskey compasses. Yeah. <laughs> we like the whiskey, too. It's all about the whiskey. Yeah, it is. Hello, APG crew. This is David, longtime listener, first time giving feedback. I was just listening to episode 303, where the discussion was around single-engine taxis and turboprops. I used to work for a regional carrier in the United States. Don't want to give you the name, but the initials are ASA. We uh, used to operate a fleet of ATR-72, similar to the Dash 8, and we would always taxi uh, single engine if we were taxing single engine with the right engine. The reason for that is the ATR-72 had a feature called hotel mode, and uh, we did not have an uh, APU on that aircraft, so we would use hotel mode when we did not have ground power or air conditioning available to be able to provide uh, electricity and pneumatics uh, for the aircraft while uh, we didn't have that ground equipment. I don't know if it's the same way on the Dash 8, but that could explain why they taxi in on the right-hand engine. Thanks for all the hard work. Absolutely love the show. Congratulations on episode 300. And I look forward to many, many great episodes in the future. Thank you, David. Did he say he was looking forward to many episodes? Do we need to cut many it down? Many episodes is another one of those people that wants us to be uh, to do a shorter show, huh? Yeah. No, I think he said many. And by the way, oh, uh, Liz Piper is a fan of your voice, David. She says, great voice. Um, yeah, you do have a nice voice and, uh, I'm just still trying to figure out what airline, uh, with the letters A S A. Hmm. I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, hotel mode for me, that's when I'm in the van heading to the hotel. Never had one of those modes inside the airplane, but interesting. Oh, yep. all right. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, uh, moving on, moving on. Let's see, Robert, uh, <laughs> Uh, Robert Thompson, um, sent me this or sent us this, um, uh, image, uh, from one of his social media feeds and he, uh, is showing us taking a picture of this Allegiant airlines, um, MD, uh, 80 something, uh, mad dog MD 80 series outside the window. And, uh, his, uh, comment here is, uh, gate agent. The captain has been in contact with me and has informed me of the arrival time. And he says, really? <laughs> so um, unless Allegiant has some kind of a special device where the captain can speak directly with the gate agent, I don't really think that that's accurate. Uh, gate agents say a lot of things that aren't really technically correct. The one that always gets me is uh, when, I'm, when I'm in the gatehouse and I'm hearing the gate agent say, today's flying time is two hours and 30 minutes. And I'm thinking, no, that's the block time, you know, scheduled time out to scheduled time in. That's not the flying time, you know. Uh, so I always have to kind of emphasize when people are on the airplane that the actual flying time today is blah, 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 and we're going to be there early or whatever. But um, I don't know, one of my many pet peeves, I guess. Thank you, Robert, for sending that in. Very amusing. Um, we do actually send in reports um, at, at Acme Airlines. We have uh, our ACARS system, our uh, box that does kind of a digital communications device where we can hit a, a certain queue that says uh, in range. And the in range report, we can kind of update our estimated time of arrival and we can indicate how many um, wheelchairs we're going to have. 
and need for our passengers, any unaccompanied minors, and other uh, comments that we want to make to the uh, arrival station. So perhaps that's what she meant, that the captain was in communication with her in, in a roundabout way, I guess, or indirectly. She was probably using flight radar 24. That could be. That would probably be the most That's accurate. More accurate than it is. <laughs> I do see, actually, uh, gate agents' uh, computer screens at times, and I can I do see Flight Radar 24 or Flight Aware or one of those sites where they actually uh, look and see what you know the real time is going to be yeah. when they come in. Yeah, a lot of the fixed base operators. That's all they use. They yeah. use uh, Flight Aware or Flight Radar 24, and yeah, it's a good system. Yeah, yeah. works great. Um. Larry sent me this. He says, uh, remember these 43 words, Jeff? And uh, here we go. Throttles, idle, rudder and ailerons, neutral, stick, abruptly full aft and hold, rudder, abruptly apply full rudder, opposite spin direction, opposite turn needle and hold, stick, abruptly full forward, one turn after applying rudder, controls, neutral, after spinning stops and recover from dive. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the spin recovery maneuver and boldface for the T-37, the Cessna T-37 jet trainer in the USAF, or, well, it used to be. They're all retired now, as are most of the airplanes that I've flown in my life. I'm trying to remember which aircraft it was, either the Nat or the Hunter. We used to have kick the ball, punch the needle. So you'd kick the slip ball uh, with the the appropriate rudder you would require to kick it, and then uh, you'd slam the... It controls forward with the aileron in the direction of the needle. Um, so, yeah. Very similar. In, in actuality, I, I've never tried it, but I always suspected that if I just let go of all the controls, the airplane would probably recover on its own. But Well, that was the recovery on the Hawk that yeah. I trained on. For many, yeah. We used to teach a proper, um, you know, opposite rudder and stick forward, blah, blah, recovery. But um, in, in reality, if you just let go, it would sort itself out. Very strong directional stability on the whole. That's that's nice. Nice to have. Um, let's see. Brian sent us a uh, some feedback with an, uh, a link to an article in AvWeb, avweb.com. He said, Jeff, perhaps you will consider this a worthy article uh, for sharing. Indeed, many of us are starting to believe it's possible again. It might even become financially rewarding again. I earned my private, and he's talking about this uh, article, which is uh, demand increases appeal of airline jobs. So going back to uh, Brian's feedback, he says, um, I might even become financially, or um, I'm sorry, I earned my private pilot certificate in June of 2011 and began eagerly working. Let me try that again. And began eagerly working toward 250 hours. However, soon after that, I learned uh, that first-year FOs were only earning a bit over $20,000 per year. Additionally, the time requirements soon changed. Needless to say, these together took the wind out of my sails. Therefore, I opted to stay in my position as an adjunct part-time college professor, not good pay either, because I was not able to justify the continued flight training cost versus the expected salary. Anyway, it looks like things are looking up now. And then he said, link below, and uh, we'll put this link in the show notes, but it's an article about the fact that, uh, yeah, uh, things are looking up for this uh, career, and the starting salaries are higher than they've been in quite some time for uh, most of the regional airlines are finally figuring out that, you know, you can't pay wages that uh, qualify you for food stamps, 
and have people, you know, seriously uh, compete for these kind of jobs. And they're going to do something else, even if they have a a passion, a love for aviation. They're just going to say, I, I can't raise a family with this kind of with this kind of wage and benefits. And uh, but things are changing, and uh, hopefully it's not you know changing too late. But we'll put that link in the show notes for you at all for you all to read. Um, moving on, I'm going to skip around a little bit. How are we doing on time? Uh, we're getting about the uh, 2:43. We're getting close to the end. Getting close to the end, Doctor. And let's see. Let me move back to this. I thought. Um, Stephen is a big part of our APG community. Um, Stephen, uh, a while back, was a flight attendant for a regional airline and then uh, got a job in the power production industry in Georgia. And and then he took a leap of faith and got on with a survey. And, you know, you mentioned, Amar, that was one of the jobs that you did to help mm-hmm. build your time. Well, Stephen now is working for a survey company as well. He sent us some feedback just to kind of get us up to date with uh, what's going on with him and what it's like to be a survey pilot. Hey, APG crew, Stephen Ivey, the survey pilot from West Georgia. Um, Going to leave some pretty long feedback. I haven't left any in a while and have a good bit to say. Um, so I've been doing survey work now for about three months. Uh, I started back at the end of October for Acme Survey out of Indiana, and um, it's been a very interesting experience. Um, I spent the first month uh, not flying a whole lot because Apparently, you can't take pictures when there's leaves on the trees for whatever reason. But let me just explain to you what exactly I'm doing. Um, when you say aerial survey, most people think you fly around and use uh, your personal camera to take pictures. And uh, while I do do that, um, that's not the uh, job. So I fly a Cessna 172 that has the back seats removed and has a computer and five camera system. Um, installed. So I've got five cameras, uh, one pointed out each side of the airplane and three pointed down at different angles. Um, so basically we um, get directed on where to go, the take pictures, and we load them up on the computer. And then we have a little indication bar that's on top of the uh, panel that tells you where to go and how far off the line and whatnot you are. So when I say the line, that's the line of which we're taking pictures. So just picture an imaginary line, and for you pilots, just picture a localizer course. So you fly along this line, and then the computer, every time it's a GPS coordinate that's supposed to, it'll take a picture. So this line, though, you have to be at a certain altitude, plus or minus 200 feet, and then you have a lateral tolerance, so left or right tolerance, of 150 feet, which can get away from you really quick in a windy day or if you aren't paying attention and thinking about other things. And then you also have a max pitch angle of 6 degrees, a max, a max roll angle of 5 degrees, and then you can have a max crab angle limit of 20 degrees. So conventional flying, you know, you're taught 
you, you don't cross control ever because it's a bad thing and can cause you to lose a lot of altitude and some other bad things will happen. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is all I fly now is cross control. So when I say cross control, um, picture the yoke in your hands and you're turning it to the left and you're going to, you're supposed to apply the same rudder to line up with the ball and your turn coordinator. So I'm doing the exact opposite. I will turn to the left and apply right rudder pressure to keep the plane from grabbing too much one way or another. Um, and also to keep from having too much of a roll effect, um, which, you know, there's a certain tolerance to that as well. So that's basically what I do. Um, and then also just a fun little tip that I've learned to do while we're doing this. So when the wind's really bad on the line, um, you know, your crab angle gets out of whack. Uh, there was a guy that I was flying with for a little while. He was telling me, so if you, instead of cross-controlling, you actually pitch into your turn but give it opposite rudder. So you're actually holding a, like, three-degree pitch, and then the rudder's sliding you out, which basically means the plane's flying in a diagonal sideways. So your picture, if you're going down a straight line, hold your hand out, turn it to the left slightly, and then bring it up a little bit. And that's basically how I'm flying. So, uh, yeah, learned a lot of little bit of um, things you just don't want to do as an actual commercial pilot, but kind of have to learn how to do them for this job. Um so, other than that, the job's been pretty okay. Um, I, I enjoy it. It gets boring, uh, going back and forth all day for four hours, but uh, I've learned to pass the time. Um, me and the other guys working the areas will talk on air to air a pretty good bit, um, cut up jokes and you know, spot traffic for each other and everything. Um, and then, as far as maintenance, um, you know, when I was getting into this line of work, there was a lot of talk about how these companies don't maintain their airplanes. They skip out on maintenance and a lot of other stuff. Um, that is all true. <laughs> so uh, my partner that I was working with a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we were going up to start the day. I had already taken off, and I was um, climbing out, and then he took off behind me. And uh, he had checked in with approach, and then he said he had to go back, and I, he was texting us back when he got on the ground, and his um, oil cooler line had come off and had leaked out oil um, out of the engine and everything, and he was able to uh, fly back to the airport. Um, let's see. There was another guy I worked with. He was just getting ready to go out, and he... Um, was adjusting his mixture, and he was turning it. You know, on 172s, there's a little turn knob that lets the mixture control out. And while he was doing that, the whole rod that kind of pulled on the cable came out of the panel. Um, there was another guy that I worked with that uh, his brakes failed, and um, luckily he was going slow at the time and just ran off the taxiway. Let's see. Um, I think that covers all of the major issues that have happened. Um, 
Luckily, my airplane hasn't had anything major happen, um, which I actually, I just gave up my airplane. I'm actually at home right now, um, so I'm going to be getting a different airplane when I go back out. But, uh, yeah, so aerial survey, definitely um, an adventure. Um, good and bad. I mean, I can't really complain too much. Um I've gotten a little over 150 hours in the past month, and um, that's a lot more than I would have gotten at home paying for uh, my flight training out of pocket. Or not flight training, but building time out of pocket. So um, definitely some good experiences from all this, especially dealing with air traffic control and busy airspace. Um, I've found that most controllers don't really like it when you tell them that you're going to be going back and forth over the top of the busy airport taking pictures, but, um, you know, some of them are a little bit easier to work with than others. That, uh, anyway, and, uh, like I said, I'm home for a week. They, uh, give us a week off about every two to three months. So I'm going to be catching up on life at home. Um, currently I'm going to be doing some multi-engine time building while I'm home to uh, meet my ATP requirements. And then I am going to be flying the Mooney around a little bit as well. Um, actually working on uh, partnering that airplane out. Um, had a couple of people that are interested, and um, a couple of them are actually APG listeners. So apparently this show is good for aircraft sales. So, But anyway, hope everybody is doing well and enjoyed the holidays. And uh, we will talk to you all later. Stephen, uh, you, uh, you owe me like, what, 10, 20% or so for uh, helping you sell the airplane, right? Since 20%. The, that's 20%? Is that standard? No, yes, Steve. I think 10%. Uh, well, you know, Steve Stephen is a friend of ours. So I'll tell you what. How about just 5%? That will, that will be okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, of course, we're just kidding. Um, great to hear from you, Stephen. Um, and I'm glad you left us that feedback because we, we have been wondering how, how this job has been working out for you. But 150 hours in a month, that's a, that's a lot of flying. And uh, you'll remember that Amar talked about that, uh, you know, he was a survey pilot for a time in his um, journey. And he said, yeah, I think it kind of gets boring sitting in the airplane just running back and forth in the lines. But, hey, you're building that time, and that's why you're doing it, right? Yeah, we used to we – used to. Call it mowing the desert in the Middle East. <laughs> mowing Just the back desert. Back and forth. Yeah, that's funny. Well, anyway, uh, Stephen, I hope that you uh, enjoy or have enjoyed. I forgot exactly when he sent this, but I hope that you're enjoying your time off. And uh, before you, you head back and, and start flying, mowing the desert or whatever. Um, but uh, always good to hear from you. And uh, we'll, let's get together sometime. Let's do another meetup here in Atlanta. Okay. Um, we have some... Feedback from a binliner pilot. Oh, we, we knew that uh, Captain Nick would enjoy this. Uh, this is from, is that official now? Um, it's, oh, it's yeah. called a binliner. Oh, that's what. Oh, yeah. t- apparently, that's what it's called here. Okay, uh, on and, the show, uh, Pip the, flies a lemon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how Nick has this uh, power to uh, rename all these things, but a lot of people in the world in the aviation world call it a dreamliner. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what Boeing prefers. Nah. Nah. Anyway, uh, he, this. Uh, Captain Richard, he calls himself Captain Richard Binliner, so he is even calling himself that, so I guess it's official. Good man. We like him. Yeah. He says, hello, APG crew. Captain Richard here from Acme, Canada. 
on episode 304, you were discussing the uh, Delta flight into Atlanta and that the tower visibility was one-eighth of a mile, but the RVRs were five to 6,000 feet. I would like to know what category of approach ATC was using. If they were only set up for Cat 1 approaches, then at least at my airline, I couldn't fly to Cat 2 or Cat 3 limits or do an auto land unless the airport was set up for Category 2 or Cat 3, which involves setting up the sensitive areas around the runways to protect localizer and glide slope integrity and an increase in aircraft spacing on the approach. Is it possible Atlanta was not set up for Cat, cat 2 or Cat 3 approaches and the crew was not prepared for a Cat 2 or 3 approach and auto land, but rather expected Category 1 minute, limits and weather? Was your favorite controller faking them out? <laughs> that could be. Um, I don't know. Um, and I was thinking to myself, what are those uh, in the U.S., the weather requirements? I looked, had to go through and look at my aeronautical information manual, and I got uh, this from that. Uh, all pilots should be aware that disturbances to ILS localizer and glide slope courses may occur when surface vehicles or aircraft are operated near the localizer or glide slope antennas. Most ILS installations are subject to signal interference by either surface vehicles, aircraft, or both. ILS critical areas are established near each localizer and glide slope antenna. And then the, when these um, added protections go into effect are automatically when weather conditions are less than 800 feet and or visibility two miles. And uh, so it goes into a little bit more detail about that. But anytime the weather is uh, 800 or less than 800 feet and visibility and or visibility less than two miles, these critical areas uh, should be protected. So uh, in this case, um, it would be well below two, even at 5,000, 6,000 RVRs, the uh, critical areas would be protected uh, based on those uh, numbers. And so at that point, it doesn't matter whether you're doing cat one, cat two, or cat three, um, as far as I'm aware. Um, Captain Nick, I was wondering what Acme Red uses for relief pilots on the longer flights, be it the 330 or- We just get some of the passengers to pop in. <laughs> Wait, does, do they do you give them any kind of like a test or anything just to make sure that they can handle it or no not really uh, sometimes if they won't come in we tie a bit of string to the <laughs> stick and just lead it back into the cabin and give it to them to hold oh okay uh, he says at acme canada we have a dedicated relief pilot for our three pilot operations and an extra first officer and a relief pilot on our four pilot ops the relief pilot's uh, uh, although trained for it in the sim, are not endorsed to take off or land in line operations unless, of course, we all had the fish. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, so, they... so? oh, that's weird. Because I, I think at uh, Acme, it, whether you're a relief pilot or not, you're fully qualified to do everything. Yeah, we, we had a few of these guys. Uh, we used to call them cruise pilots. They had one stripe. And it was kind of a trial. Um, they joined the company knowing what the deal was, but basically they only allowed to uh, fly in the cruise. Uh, and, uh, you know, once the uh, descent started, they had to be out of the seat and the regular crews had to uh, take over. Uh, pretty dismal job, I think, really, because all you're doing is sitting there for hour upon hour monitoring and working the radio. You're not allowed to you really handle the aircraft uh, much and uh, certainly no hand flying available really in, uh, in the cruise. Once you're an RVSM, you're obliged to use the uh, um, autopilot. Um, so, uh, you know, a bit, but 
eventually the ca- the company worked them up to being first officers, and then some of them are captains now. So you know it worked for them, but that was just a trial with, I think it was a dozen of them or something. Uh, but no, we just use a regular first officer as a relief pilot. Uh, we don't have enough captains, uh, and to use a second captain if we have four pilots, uh, we have an extra like two first officers uh, and the operating crew of a first officer and a captain. Uh, if we're on a four pilot op, um, so I know some airlines always insist on having two captains on board if they're on a four pilot trip, but no, that's not our requirement. Uh, and most of our flights, quite honestly, I don't think there are any that actually require four pilots. I can't think so, of any. So these now. cruise pilots, um, obviously, they were pilots, so they know how to land an airplane. Uh, well, they were yes. They 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 had a uh, either a, I guess they had an AT, frozen ATPL probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but not the hours, uh, and we didn't uh, recruit them with uh, you know the idea of uh, doing anything other than sitting in the crews, and they weren't allowed to uh, operate there, sit out there, an operating seat during the takeoff. But of course, they must have some kind of. Um, pilot licenses to get to that position. Yeah, I, I think, yeah frozen a, a transport pilot's license. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they were just waiting for the hours. I think at Acme Canada, um, the RP position, the relief pilot position, is um, it's nor- normally a, a junior pilot position, um, you know, depending if it's available uh, at the time of hire. Um, a, a lot of guys, that, that that's what they want. They want to get on the... Um, you know, fly the big triple sevens or the seven eight sevens, and um, do some of the international stuff. And um, you, you, so you can either be a first officer on the three twenty or the Embraer uh, at Acme Canada, or get onto the the bigger heavies, uh, the seven eight seven, uh, the the triple sevens. So uh, I would say, on average, a lot of them uh, definitely they'll have an ATPL. I, I don't know of anybody at Acme Canada was hired without an airline transport pilot license in the last you know at least ten years. Um, and a couple thousand hours as well. Um, m- my assumption and my guess is that they probably have a full type rating course, um, or something close to it. Um, uh, but they don't do any line training, uh, to land the airplane. Um, but, uh, I, I would imagine they're highly qualified pilots. Yeah. I, same. When they did lots of simulator work, uh, and, uh, you know, when they're in the simulator, they're expected to be able to land the simulator. So that mm-hmm. was a requirement just in case they mm-hmm. had to operate in the seat because someone was sick, uh, and even perform the landing, they had to be capable of doing that, but they just didn't do it for real. Right. But at least you'd be, you know, assured that if something terrible went long, wrong and they were having to be at the controls for landing, that they were perfectly capable of doing so. Well, I, I don't think they'll ever be a scenario where you'll have two RP pilots at the controls. So you'll always have at least a first officer, uh, a line first officer, and uh, maybe accompanied with a relief okay. pilot. So, uh, um, and, and I'm guessing that the first officer will occupy the captain seat and uh, the RP will stay in the right hand seat, but I'm not sure. It's just a guess. Um, yeah, or I maybe, think we'd do it the other way, way around. Oh, or, yeah, the other way around. That would make pilot. sense. It, it just makes sense. Yeah. So uh, um, there was something else I was going to say. Uh, uh, that was gone. Doesn't matter. Okay. He said, as a side note, the 787 has four 235 VAC variable frequency starter generators, uh, two per engine, and the APU has two. 
of these VAC variable frequency starter generators. Thus, we routinely start both engines at the same time using the two APU starter generators, which saves us fuel from the shorter start and taxi times. Wow, that's kind of cool. They start both engines simultaneously. Very yeah, cool. I, we, we can do that on the 340. Oh. We can, we can start two together, uh, mm -hmm. and we're using the APU. Yeah. But for some reason on the 330, we can't. The APU hasn't got enough puff to uh, wind two simultaneously, which I thought was a bit pathetic. Huh. Um, I, I remember the thing I was talking about. Um, Amar, so you've got guys that uh, would purposely, as a junior first officer, go on with the heavy jets, uh, despite the fact that they're going to miss out on all the handling experience on the shorter range jets and all that advantage of getting the sort of uh, uh, all those sectors under their belt and uh, and then move on inevitably to the longer haul mm -hmm. flights. They, uh, they would prefer to go straight into the cruise pilot job on one of those big jets? Um, well, again, it's, it's just a guess, but I, I do know, um, you know, whatever's available at the time, if the RP position is available or the 320 FO or uh, uh, oh, okay. w so. whatever the demand is. I, I don't right. know if it's seniority base. Uh, you know, you pick a number out of a hat depending on how many uh, uh, how many uh, guys are in the class or gals. And um, uh, I, I think some, some I, I know of some people that that's what they want. They want to be, you know, a relief right. pilot on uh, – you know, some of these I, bigger flights. So. I don't know what you think. I find that a little short-sighted. I'd rather you know, yeah. get my yeah. time in flying lots of sectors until I become a damn good pilot. Mm -hmm. Then I can go waste my time going halfway around the world. I'm landing a <laughs> like what you're doing now. Well, now, my, <laughs> exactly. yeah, that's true. But mind you, a lot of these guys, I mean, Canada is a pretty small country, relatively speaking, um, in terms of population. So um, a lot of these guys, you know, been doing that on the RJs and the Dash 8s. And, uh, you know, so that they've all, on average, I would say, they'd have, you know, over 5,000 hours of flying uh, before they would uh, go on to uh, a company like AC. Yeah, good point. Or Acme Canada. It's not like they're yeah. hired off the street. Right. Yeah. 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 Huh. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for your perspective as a binliner pilot for Acme Canada, Captain Richard. Appreciate the feedback, and thanks for um, keeping us straight. Um, and uh, I'm getting hungry, and uh, Amar is uh, looking at his watch because he's thinking, I'm going to be in the sim here pretty soon. I better start <laughs> studying. Uh, it's his check ride today, so wish uh, Amar luck, although he doesn't need any. He just He's a very proficient pilot, I'm sure, although I've never flown with him. Find the autopilot engage button. That's your. That's what you need to do. That's all you need to do. And if it clicks on, you click it on multiple times. Just keep pushing. It, just mashing that button engages, over and yeah. over until it works. That's the trick. <laughs> and uh, so, and we had a couple more pieces of feedback in the folder. We're going to shift those to the next episode. Uh, we have uh, somebody talking about the uh, honor guard and transporting human remains of uh, our fallen soldiers. And um, uh, so I want to spend a little more time on that one than we have left on today's show. And also uh, Derek sent us some audio feedback about, uh, do you know who you're flying with? And uh, and that's uh, going to be a good discussion as well. So we're going to push those on to the next uh, well, episode. In the case of uh, Jet Airways, they, uh, they probably knew, yeah, they know, they knew each other too <laughs> yeah, well, I think. Well. Yeah, uh, that's the so issue. 307 will be next week. Uh, <laughs> hope, well, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to record something uh, sometime, hopefully earlier in the week next week, because uh, I am planning, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, to uh, fly over to London to uh, catch the uh, 200th episode recording and uh, celebration uh, of the PTUK. 
And uh, let's see. And, and again, Captain Nick, uh, you're speaking at the Royal Aeronautical Society in uh, uh, just south of Manchester, right? That's right. At, uh, at the RF Museum Cosford, at the uh, what is actually the uh, Cold War exhibition. And that is uh, on the evening of uh, Thursday the 18th. At probably, what, 7 o'clock, something like that? Uh, yeah, I think it's 7, 7.30, but probably 7-ish. Okay. Yeah. So it, if you're in the area. Uh, if you look up the Royal Aeronautical Society uh, website, it's uh, all there. Awesome. All right. And if you want to learn more about the show, always head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website and uh, all kinds of information there about so many different things uh, about the uh, crew and community and um, not going to go into everything. You just have to check it out yourself. And uh, let's say we have the um, apps for the mobile devices, uh, your iPhone or Android phones. You can get the uh, Airline Pilot Guy show app for free. And there's no ads or anything like that. It's a great way to get uh, push notifications when they're working. I did send one out for today's show, but it, uh, I'm not sure how many people got it. I didn't get one. Uh, but I knew that we were doing the show, so it didn't matter. Uh, social media. Captain Nick, you want to tell us about social media? No, I think Amar should do that. Okay. Okay, social media. <laughs> <laughs> he was falling asleep. <laughs> oh, no, I'm only kidding. Um, we are on the uh, website. So PTUK at, uh, Airline... podcast today. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Feedback at pilotguide.com. Yeah. yeah. On the uh, website, the uh, our Twitter handle is at, at APG Crew, and you can find us on Facebook uh, for Airline Pilot Guy. Yep, and uh, we're also uh, uh, on Slack, and uh, Hillel is the one that manages that. So here, take it away, Hillel. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And by the way, Hillel is at HI11E1. So if you send it to uh, whoever has at Hillel with the L's, you're probably not going to get on the APG Slack team. So just a a little little tip there. And let's see, what else? That's about it. So uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Good day. Friends
Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline like a guy Boy, I ain't going.